Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up Podcast. Solly here. Got another deep dive episode back by special request. A lot of demand for these episodes. We've got a lot of great feedback. We greatly appreciate everyone that's reached out, everyone that's listened, everyone that's laughed along to some of these stories. We've got another another really good giggly moment in this one that KVV hit us with, which uh, I just relived it. We recorded this a few months ago, uh, and I had a blast reliving that one. I think you guys will greatly enjoy We do the 1997 uh, major championships if you're listening to this maybe for the first time we're not familiar with these deep dives we kind of started going we originally started doing like 1991 through 93 or really doing big block years but we started breaking them out individually for each year uh, re-watching old film reading old articles and just kind of relaying some of our favorite stories trading back and forth I, I take the masters in open he takes the u.s open in the pga and uh, kind of informing informing the, the listener along with the person who didn't research the uh the particular major um about it and kind of reacting to it in real time a lot of fun thanks to everyone that's been involved I want to thank roback as well for being a great partner they are fresh off new restocks of our favorite polos, hoodies, and Q-zips. Uh, they just sent me another great batch of clothes. More hoodies. I think I've almost completed the full collection of hoodies. Uh, listen, as much as we're on camera, I need to keep a nice rotation of rowback hoodies going because uh, I can't be seen wearing all the same stuff all the time. But uh, I, I, we're, we're getting pretty close to having the full, the full, you know, the full gamut, if you will. I love going to their website and just looking at the stuff because it is really that good. The hoodies are fantastic. The Q-zips are back. I love these Q-zips. I wear them as an outer layer to play golf all the time. Wear them around the house. They are the definition of versatile. They'll keep you looking and feeling good. And, uh, of course, the the polos. The polos are fantastic. They, the material is moisture-wicking. It's got a great stretch. Really enjoy some of their nice stripe design. I just think they're really, really crisp along with the collar. It doesn't lose its shape. And if you haven't already, it's time to load up on some rowback, both for yourself and for others you can use. Use code NLU at Roback.com for a generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com, 20% off bottoms, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. Get ready for the golf season with Roback. Without any further delay, here are the 1997 major championships. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. We are back with yet another major championship recap with my guy, Kevin Van Valkenburg. 1997 edition kvv how are you feeling so I, i'm doing really well i have a really good joke that i want to use but i do not want to spoil what is a potentially 97 masters anecdote so i will keep it to myself okay uh we are going to be adding a little bit of a visual element to this version of it if you are listening in your car there is going to be a youtube version with just uh, no highlight clips in it, but a couple of just still images that will help illustrate the story just a little bit. Uh, we're working on getting more episodes up on YouTube. Not as easy of a process as people would like to make it, but uh, these look back episodes, there's there's just enough stuff that happens in it. It's like, oh, man, you got, I can't describe this image. Like, you got to just see this. You got to go with it. And uh, there, we're getting into, I, I forget all the years we've done. I know we did 91 to 93. I think we skipped 94 we did 95, we did 96. I think I had that right. The goal was kind of covering this 
weird little time period in the 90s before golf changed forever. And I think the first major that we're going to get to in 1997 is the moment that golf changed forever. I let you do the 1996 Masters, which was traumatic. Uh, and I, I called for the ball for the 1997 Masters. And then kind of immediately regretted it when uh, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours preparing for it and then remembered that Tiger wrote a book about the 1997 Masters. And I was like, I should probably use a little bit of what's in that and have spent uh, the last week or so driving around Jacksonville listening to the audiobook, which you can find on uh, on Spotify, which has been great. But getting the 1997 Masters in Tiger's own words. And uh, that will be seeping through a little bit in our coverage of the 97 Masters. That's lovely. I, I know the joke that I was going to make early on was about the come on ride that train moment. Uh, so I, uh, you know, I, I guess Damn if, it. if you know that for sure, then I go <laughs> ahead and swallow it. But, that is going to be, that's like my highlight moment, which we're going to get to. But. <laughs> Listen, uh, you still get credit for, for making me laugh, uh, even though I already was aware of that moment. These, you know what, these, majors i think the reason why we are i've picked these and i think why that they have resonated with people is like they're just old enough to like you don't remember them in a crystal clear way but there's also just enough like clips out there or like remembrances of there we're gonna push ourselves and we're gonna try to do like the 1961 open at some point you know something crazy like that but but these are really the sweet spot of like hey there's a lot of newspaper archives there was a lot of people covering golf at the time there's just an encyclopedia of stuff out there. And so I guarantee there are some great things in your 97 that nobody remembers because that's just how memory works. Cause there's a shit ton of mine in the 97, you know, us open that nobody remembers. Well, the, the problem with doing something that people do remember quite well and is well documented about doing 97 masters is like, I fear like leaving something out that is like, you know, obvious. And there's one thing that I was, you know, I was 98% done. I was like, Oh God, I forgot this happened. You cannot forget about that one. That's got to go in there. And that's what sent me on a, on a rabbit hole to go find it, all the stuff that I could, but I promise there's a lot of good stuff. Um, getting into it, length of the course at the 97 Masters, 6,925 yards. It is playing firm this year. There are 86 players in the field. The prize fund is $2.7 million. The winner will be gifted $486,000 in today's dollars. That is just a $5.2 million purse, $932,000 to the winner. That is the state of golf in 1997. Uh, the winner of a major championship does not get a million dollars in today's dollars. Um, I have a feeling that is all about to change, probably because in large part of what we're about to witness. The OWGR going into the 1997 Masters goes Greg Norman, Tom Lehman, Colin Montgomery, Mark O'Meara, Ernie Els, Steve Elkington, of course, of course, our guy Jumbo Ozaki yes, continuing yes, to manipulate yes. his way in the top 10. Uh, Nick Faldo has fallen all the way to eighth in the world. Oh. Uh, Phil Mickelson is nine. Nick Price is 10. Scott Hoke, 11. Fred Couples, 12. Eldrick Tiger Taunt Woods is ranked 13th in the world. Um, just I, I'm going to have many quiz questions for you throughout this. How many start? How many professional starts has Tiger Woods made uh, before the 97 Masters? Uh, would have debuted at the John Deere that year, or maybe the Milwaukee. Yeah, year. Milwaukee. That's right. Uh, 12, 13, 14 starts. And how many times has he won? Uh, I think he has won twice at this point. He's Sorry. won three times. three times. He won in Vegas. Mm -hmm. He also won the Mercedes that year. And I forget 
what the other one was, but I'm sure someone will yell at me for that one. But he's won three times going into this one. I'll get into the odds here here in a second. But so, like, can I just say one thing real quick? The taunt part of Tiger's name, I feel like it's really underrated. You know, totally. we call him Eldrick a lot, but like, you know, taunt is actually his like second middle name. I, I think we got to bring that back. <laughs> I've tried. It never catches on. And I don't really know why I uh, for all the all the nicknames that we have for him. I'm surprised that one has never big, stuck. The big taunt. He has uh, played in the Masters before, twice as an amateur. Of course, he is the three-time defending U.S. amateur champion on the backs of winning uh, three U.S. junior championships, but he has never broken par in six rounds at the Masters. Uh, He made the cut in 1995, uh, missed the cut in 1996, and uh, leading up to it in 1997, famously, uh, back at Isleworth, practicing and playing a lot of golf, leading up to it, he shot a uh, very, very well-documented 59 uh, he was playing with Marco Mira the next day. He birdied their first hole, which was the 10th hole at Isleworth. Steps up on the 11th or second hole. Everyone knows what he does. Ace, Makes a hole in one. Ace. And Marco Mira just jumps back in his cart and drives home and tells the story to every person he's met for every every single day for the next <laughs> 25 years. So. I think I saw Marco Mira in a car park uh, like at the Open Championship this year. Probably, was my recollection of it, he told that story. He never <laughs> tell you about the time Tiger made an ace uh, right before the Masters in 97. Um, I'm going to refer a lot to Tiger's book throughout the course of this because uh, a lot of stuff, obviously, is going to permeate through. But he talks so much in that book about how he was playing at Isleworth leading up to this mm-hmm. and how that does end up a factor. We all know what he shoots on the front nine and how the Isleworth practice and the golf he played leading up to it changed the way he approached the remaining 63 holes uh, of this golf course. But Golf Digest also has a great oral history um, with a bunch of uh, quotes from different people. One of them, Paul Azinger. Uh, might be a little revisionist history in this uh, telling of the tale from Mr. Azinger, but he said, before the Masters, Tiger was favored, but the sports talk radio guy in my area was saying how wrong that was. Uh, what has Tiger Woods done to be the favorite? And come on, there's a better chance that he'll miss the cut. So I called in. I didn't identify myself, (laughs) but the guy knew my voice. I just wanted to tell the guy that he had it really wrong. And not only could Tiger win, but he could win by a lot. Hey, you'll never, you'll never understand this kid. I'm, 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 I'm Paul calling from Wax, you know, from Seminole Country Club down here, and I just, you know, no, not that Paul. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I just want you to know, this kid handles pressure better than you could ever, ever possibly understand. <laughs> uh, and uh, again, he talks so much in the books about his preparation for Augusta, and he talks about in 1995 and in '96, he had played practice rounds with Jack Nicklaus, Freddie Couples. Greg Norman, Ben Crenshaw, Raymond Floyd, Arnold Palmer, like you name it. He talks so much about what he learns from them. He gives specific examples. If you're a golf nerd, the the, the 1997 book is a, has a little bit of the Netflixy like this is how a cut works. And it's a little bit, uh, you know, basically, if you're like a 14 year old that's getting really into golf, it is the perfect book. Like it teaches you about the Masters. If you're a golf nerd like us, there's a lot of stuff in there that you can kind of breeze past that you obviously know about. But, man, he is so incredibly focused on controlling his distances, controlling his spin, learning where the best places are to play from at Augusta, and talks in such great detail. And I'm going to skip way ahead to the very end. The end of his book, he spends 
basically lambasting the world of golf and the direction that it has gone since 1997 of distance, wow. the changes that were required to be made to Augusta because of distance, adding the rough, adding the trees, making it an execution golf course instead of a strategic golf course. And he goes hole by hole examples of how everything has changed and how it was way more interesting in 1997, way more match with Alistair McKenzie and Bobby Jones had envisioned and exactly the relationship between technology, the lack of spin, driver heads, all of it. Like, it's all there. I don't think people really know that, right? This is all know. real hit them up situation. But I'd like, I'm going to take some names here and talk about why this. I, is, I mean, I might be being a little <laughs> bit dramatic about it, but he like very clearly states that it's a bad, bad thing. I'll, I have some of the quotes in, on the back end, but all that rewinds to say, Leading up into this on a wide open Augusta National um, with, you know, tricky greens and a golf course that's just unlike anything else that they play. He is talking about angles the entire time, where to miss, how to play certain holes. There's enough width in that golf course. And again, with this style of play versus just the easy driver wedge stuff there is now, how unless the pin was in a specific spot on 11, he played down the right side. But when it was on the right side, he played to the left center of the fairway. Unbelievable detail about exactly how to play this course and how it made him think and how, you know, Raymond Floyd taught him, you know, it, when you're out of position on number two, just blow it way right into the crowd because you'll get up. You never would have pictured it. But when you get over there, you're chipping straight up the hill. And he actually uses that one time when he gets into trouble and all that. So uh, real, I'm not going to go into all of it, but really, really nerdy stuff that's just fascinating. Yeah. I love listening to him talk about how Ray Floyd taught him how to chip with like a four iron and stuff like real nerd shit that it's like, no, no, no. Like you should basically put the ball back in your stance and, and take a four iron and just bump it along. I mean, you know, every now and then like he gets nostalgic now these days about those times. And so he's a lot more into telling those kind of stories. And he loves talking about like the practice round with Floyd and like, just, yeah, just blow it into the stands and yell four because that's <laughs> or the, not the stands, the patrons. Uh, he told that the very same story at this last match or at the, the masters this past time when he played. So, um, but yeah, it talks about, he wanted to learn from the champions, wanted to learn exactly how uh, they played the course, how, and how he, you know, his experience playing in 95, 96 led to me. He's always putting from above the hole, always going after pins. And he asked Faldo, like, you know, how many pins did you go after today? And he's like, I don't know, like four, maybe five. And he's like, well, I went after 18. Uh, so maybe I have something to learn. Uh, after the guy that just won the masters and how he goes and plays the golf course. So he learned about how you can play conservatively and shoot really low at Augusta. Says some stuff that would drive the data boys absolutely nuts. If I'd rather have a 15 footer up the hill than a six footer down the hill, uh, which I, I even I might agree with the data boys on this. I don't know how accurate that is, but just speaking to his his nerd level at this time, Carl Jackson, who is a, a you know famous caddy at Augusta, he was the Masters caddy uh, for '84 and '95 winner Ben Crenshaw. He said, Tiger did something I really respect. At the 96 Masters, his last year as an amateur, Tiger played a practice round with Ben. He followed Ben and me around as we talked about likely pin positions, and it was obvious he was paying attention. He missed the cut that year, but on Friday before he left, he looked me up and said, Mr. Jackson, those pin positions were exactly where you said they'd be. Thank you so much. And I remember thinking, that young man was raised right. I don't know if we need, uh, you know, comment from from Mr. Jackson in 2009 about whether or not, you know, Tiger was 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 raced right. But, uh, you know, he was before the world had really damaged Tiger. He was, uh, you know, uh, well-spoken and, and just very, like, uh, a thankful and appreciative person. Like, he, he his, just hear him, like, do interviews and stuff, and it is totally different than it would be just a few years later. Interesting thing, too, to think about, like, just how, like, you know, for Carl Jackson, who'd been caddying in Augusta all that time, like, to see a black player come along who was, like, the force of nature and to see be so invested in 
the, his success and the idea that this person might change everything that, that had to be like kind of a really emotional cool thing for a lot of the caddies there i mean there's a famous story in the in the you may get to about the, you know the cooks and the people coming out and and clapping you know i mean imagine just seeing that like after augustus history and then when it was still a very complicated place and you know probably is today for a lot of people but certainly back in 1997 as we'll learn uh, a lot lot worse i will get to a, a lot of that and it was it, to me again that story feels so well documented again we're 26 years later and i i look at i don't believe that race relations in golf have evolved to uh perfection but it's like we've had this conversation for most of my adult life my entire adult life and most of my life as a kid like things have definitely evolved since then going back and reading articles in the build-up to this yeah. and how it all happened was it was a reminder of how monumental this was right and how um, you know, again, you get to you dive into what is actually happening in the conversation in that time period, not just how that conversation has evolved in 26 years. And it was just a reminder to me of some shocking facts again about Augusta and race and and him being the do you know the answer to this? How many uh, how many black players had played at Augusta or in the Masters before he he did? I think that and I remember looking this up previously. I think I get this right. I think he's the fourth. Like you're exactly right, which is crazy. In 1997, only three other people prior to him, African Americans, had played in the Masters. Correct. <gasps> Golf, uh, do better. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, in the in the lead up, he said in his Tuesday presser, he said, "I just came. I just came here to win." Um, which again, of course, probably rubs some people the wrong way. Ticket prices allegedly re reached ten thousand um, dollars for this Masters at at, at some point, and. Uh, a really tough story that I'm not going to get into the details of because it was pretty complicated, but a local ticket broker actually committed suicide after his planned like black market ticket supplier got a better offer from a corporation for tickets and it left him like 172 tickets short of people that he had promised tickets to. Uh, and he, he actually committed suicide. Um, it's a, that was a, a well-documented story that was, that was written up in a lot of places, but nice. I'd never heard that one before diving back into this. This is the first Masters for Lance Barrow after Frank Cherkinian had produced mm. the last 38. Frank Cherkinian would have some quotes later of being watching it at home, just despondent at this, the fact that he was not covering <laughs> like the most significant Masters maybe ever. Of course, leading up into it, Tiger got a putting tip famously from his dad the night before the tournament. And uh, again, going back to his practice and how the state of golf in this time, he talked about at home at Isleworth, he would practice shots with persimmon drivers to test where he needed to hit the ball on the face to shape shots certain ways right wow. if you like because of the gear effect on precision uh, on on persimmon drivers practicing hitting off the heel and guaranteeing that it wouldn't go left and practicing hitting it off the toe to get that feel of getting the ball to go right to left and you could feel the ball in the face more with persimmon uh, than he could the titanium drivers he had a king cobra driver at that time god how much fun would it be if we said just always just had wood bats you know forever like that you know the idea of like artistry i don't know god it'll be just it makes me drool as like a freaking golf nerd to think about you know persimmon would have gotten better for sure and you know there would have been different wood technology for sure but and that just the idea of that like all right i think i'm gonna i'm gonna have to make this go left so i'm gonna hit it off the toe intentionally 
Some uh, pre-tournament writing. Uh, this is from Ooh. the Associated Press. This is the only like only true mea culpa I could find. I'm sure there's more out there. This is uh, there's an article under the subheading of uh, Tiger Woods may have a tough time at Augusta, Ooh. and uh, in the image that's up on the screen now, it shows a picture of Tiger. Uh, the, the the title of the article is Tiger not out of the woods yet at Masters. Also, the tournament hasn't started yet. Uh, <laughs> And under the picture of him swinging, it is. It says Tiger Woods is expected to have a tough time at Augusta this week. Wow. Um, I don't know where they were getting this from because almost everything I found leading up to this uh, said like pretty clearly, like, "Hey, this guy's this guy's the real deal," and mm-hmm. something's about to happen. Um, he did not sneak up on many golf riders. John Stridge, is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, for the Orange County St- Register, John Stridge, but yeah, Stridge. Yeah. He wrote. Um, that a black man could make history with win at once all white masters. Like it was all before the tournament even started. It was about race. Like it was almost everything is written of like, what would happen here if this very complicated, uh, complicated place would, you know, if a black guy won there when Clifford Roberts, the famous, you know, co-founder and the other, I guess the, the former president of the club is famous for saying, uh, as long as I'm alive, then the golfers will be right. And the golf and the caddies will be black. Now Tiger Woods, the, the first great, really great black golfers coming along only at age 21 has never won a major and is already being predicted as like, yeah, this is going to happen. Nicholas and Palmer had said leading up to this, that he's likely to win more masters than us combined. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, uh, so I really don't know where this writer was getting this of like, yeah, he, he's yeah, expected to struggle this week because, um, he was the favorite at plus 800 leading up into this Norman okay. Faldo and price, uh, are at plus 1000. Um, again, in that AP article, it says, while Augusta National might be tailored for Woods's power, his sometimes erratic irons, shaky short putting, and lack of experience <laughs> keep him from being the flat-out favorite when the 61st Masters starts on Thursday. Couldn't even get that last part right because he is the flat-out favorite. Going into <laughs> also, shaky iron play. I mean, I guess, you know, it's, it's, we're talking about maybe the greatest iron player of all time. Uh, but I guess at, at this, this point. time, yeah. he, and he talks about this too, his, his, his swing is not, He's not pleased with where his swing is at at this point, especially rewatching these highlights. And he's mm-hmm. often criticized for changing his swing shortly after this, but he goes into great detail as to um, because the club gets across the line at the top, his backswing has a tendency to get long. And when his timing is on, he can do it all. But he had trouble controlling his spin, had trouble controlling his distance because uh, you know his hips would outrace his hands and he uh, would not have a consistent ball flight. Even if it's a couple shots in this tournament that go long, he has the Icarito ball mm-hmm. of uh, just not somebody that has in full control of placing his irons in all the right spots just yet. That part seems like a somewhat fair you know, assessment because in Tiger's own words, like he had work to do after this uh, outrageous performance that's about to happen. But again, in John Stredge's article, uh, he wrote about how Tiger was on the cover of a USGA magazine doing a fist pump and the USGA got letters about it. Uh, <laughs> the letters included, and again, this is, I'm reading the, the, the these are obviously not my words. Uh, the one quote is, who is this? Some uncivilized savage. Oh uh, the next letter was, I am disturbed by the cover photo of Woods doing his now famous war dance. Um, said, I find Woods's pose and reaction insulting Images like these are expected in the NBA and the NFL, not the USGA. Jesus. Uh, and I feel your cover is of the in-your-face style, which is certainly not what we need in golf. Yikes. I wonder if those were signed letters. I'd like to go track some of those fellows down now and see if uh, how they feel about uh, having 
put that into the public record. Again, that was yeah, shocking to to read. And again, just putting you back in the place of like what golf looked like even in the mid nineties. Again, golf is famously behind the times on almost anything. And uh yeah, that was that was the reaction to uh a, a black guy being a uh one of the top players in the world. So whew. Uh, going into Thursday, I have seen the uh, 1997 Masters official film, I would say about 10 times conservatively in my okay. life. Uh, yeah. I, 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 most of my memories of the 97 Masters are just based on watching film. this film. Like I know when some of these quotes are coming around the corner. I know the emphasis that the announcer has on like, he, here he is on 15 with a pitching wedge. Like, I know what clubs are about to come. I've seen it so many times. I know what Earl's about to say. Uh, it's been on Golf Channel so many times that I watch it every single time. Um, you are, you know, by the way, this t- in this moment, 12 years old, 11 years old? I am nine, 10 years 10 old, about to turn 11 that okay. summer. Yes, 10 years old. I remember watching it that Sunday, um, and I remember yeah. it being pretty monumental you know, almost, I don't remember if my mom or my dad, I remember watching the kitchen. I remember them saying like, you should come watch this. Like, this is, this is a big deal. This is happening. Um, I'm 18 by the way, at this point, I'm just, just a freshman in college. Uh, How big are you into golf at this point? Not very much. Uh, in fact, very little. Uh, I remember watching just only just to write letters to the USGA when, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) express my outrage. You know what I do remember? I was a freshman member. I remember the freshman football team. I remember the football team as a freshman at the university of Montana. And I, on my floor were several African-American guys from Florida and they were just so riveted by it. And they were like this, I don't give a shit about golf, but you gotta like, you gotta come watch this. And so we were like, huddling around TVs, uh, sort of in our dorm rooms, like kind of, you know, not sitting and watching it for hours and hours, but like, I would just like checking in on it periodically like, man, Tiger's like the real deal. This dude's awesome. So that was a pretty cool core memory for me. Another true, uh, another trivia question that's coming later. How many people you are among how many people that watched the, uh, final round of the 1997 masters? Uh, 12 million, 10 million, somewhere. 44 million people. And I don't know how that translates into, into ratings or whatnot and and all that, uh, you know, but I I believe they estimated that 44 million people watched the final round of the master. Like there's like not even 300 million people in the U S at that point. Right. I mean, I don't know if that's counting global audience or where that comes from. That's on Wikipedia. So, wow. uh, So, you know, it's true. Okay. Um, the 97 Masters film opens up very dramatically, uh, and the announcer says, this is about a son and a father. This is about a golf course and its history, about America and a prodigy, someone new with a talent we could not imagine. It's about youth, determination, and pride. It's about some of us, and it's about all of us, and it takes place in four days in April amid the tall pines in Georgia. It's the story of the 1997 Masters. Good job. Whoever wrote that, you know, well, well, good TV writing. There is someone who's tried to do a little bit of that voiceover type stuff. Like there's a, as a cadence to it. I appreciate it. It's, it's about, it, it, I don't, I don't have a full documentation of all of Augusta's commentary on its past, but it, you know, the fact that it's an Augusta film and it says this is about a golf course and its history mm-hmm. um, is about as big of an admission as you get from them. I think on, on the racial past, if I, 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 Again, there may there may be more that I that I cannot think of off the top of my head, but I just found that part of it interesting. Uh, Gene Sarazen, ninety five years old, uh, hits the opening shot with Byron Nelson, who's eighty five, and Sam Snead, who is eighty four years old. Tiger Woods is paired with, of course, Nick Faldo. Do you remember who else he is paired with on this day? 
I really don't. Uh, it's because not- they're playing in twosomes. I don't. What? I do not remember this about the Masters. I kept like digging. Like, who was the other guy in the group? They're playing in twosomes. I don't know if that was when they went to threesomes uh, in the Masters, but that was that was a surprise to me. Not only that, they repair after round one. Again, oh wow! I remember this, but he ends up playing the second round with Paul Azinger, um, and not Nick Faldo because he what? just ended he ended Nick Faldo's career. That might have been the reason why. But <laughs> I feel like yeah. I I just learned there's no Santa Claus. Like we've been talking about <laughs> pairings and all this stuff for years, and it, I, I mean I guess I I will say in my U.S. Open research, like this idea that like there weren't like cutesy pairings or whatever. Remember when people got so upset about you know Bryson and and Brooks being potentially paired together like the USGA has been doing that shit forever like just there's no like oh it has to be the number one player in the world with the number one amateur like pairing pairings for every major in this era are just like a basically a roll of dice yeah um he gets he's an afternoon tea time he would have an afternoon tea time on all four days again thanks to this repairing there was oh, wow. no morning morning afternoon uh shift oh, so he had invalidated invalidated he never had to play in the morning dude that's <laughs> that's totally unfair <laughs> uh well most guys would say that's easier because it's right, you get a softer yeah. golf course and less wind and uh, he never had a tea time before two o'clock uh at the 97 masters and uh Comes out wearing a black. I, again, I don't know if this is uh, any kind of statement of any kind, but he has black shoes, black pants, black vest, black hat, and black trim on his shirt uh, as he goes out. I don't think it is any kind of statement. It seems like pretty antith- antithetical to kind of Tiger's approach to all of this and how he did not want to be defined uh, as just, uh, he, again, talks a lot about this in the book as well, about did not want to be defined by just his father's heritage. He thought it was disrespectful to his mother's Asian heritage and the Caucasian blood that he has as well of saying, you know, that's where his joke of calling himself Cablin Asian. Uh, he's, he expressed some regret in using that frame, but, uh, phrase, but it was something that he and his buddies had come up with and kind of joked about. But uh, he would later learn, he said, in America, you know, they, if you're considered black if you have any any drop of blood of black in you. And uh, he had to, that was a lesson he kind of had to learn in that process as well. Maybe, as Phil said, he he learned that NFL teams who wear black come out more aggressive. Aggressive he, colors. <laughs> aggressive colors. Well, he got a lot of flags throwing him on this front nine because it did not <laughs> go great. Uh, he stepped up on the first tee and just absolutely shit roasted one high and left and he looks like he lost the masters on the very first <laughs> shot i mean this was not even like upset not even like mad about it he just looks like near tears yeah he looks devastating he puts his hand over his mouth and uh like looks like he cannot recover from it um they note that the the highest opening nine by a masters winner is 38 um there's an old golf channel highlight look back package and jim thorpe comes on and he's like Tiger come in first nine holes kind of sucked a little bit, you know, and <laughs> kind of sucked. <laughs> like, right, there is no better way to describe uh, what happened on that front nine because he bogeys the first hole. He bogeys the fourth. He bogeys the eighth and has to make a putt on the ninth hole uh, for bogey to go out in 40. 40. Really interesting stuff uh, in the book as well. Talking about the walk from the 10th tee. Uh, from the ninth green to the tenth tee, and reflecting back on it, he was he said he was especially thankful for his dad's trainings. The tough training had prepared him to be able to handle that adversity of that front nine. He said if he had not trained me as he had, I could have easily crumbled in that moment. Also gave thanks to his mother's Buddhism. Uh, he had been to Thailand with her three times, uh, and he said after my front nine, I needed to find what my mom called the quiet spot. It came automatically in that green to tea walk. It had become so much a part of me. I did feel cold-blooded, as my dad had put it. I felt in control. The walk was only a few yards, and I accomplished a lot in it. 
Uh, he also reflected on Butch's training and how one shot does not dictate what's about to happen. And he has like a swing thought that comes to him to say like, my swing got too long on this front nine. I need to uh, shorten this swing up to my swing that was at Isleworth. And he steps up and hits uh, a two iron down the fairway. He says he felt it immediately. It was the same feel he had in all of his practice at Isleworth. The shortened backswing, it was instant correction, and he just rode the field. Mm. Um, truly one of the most significant find it moments in yeah, golf yeah. history. <laughs> Look, I've been there. You know, I, I've walked from the ninth tee to the 10th green and thought, well, which one of the 27 swing thoughts in my head might click? It's, I've never quite gotten, you know, where I, I went and then went, you know, 14 under the next, uh, uh, you know, 36 holes or whatever. But, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that day is still coming. I would say uh, this is a, a, a great tro- uh, time for a Neil drop in of, Found it! Found it! Um, <laughs> as, this, as the two iron runs down the fairway because uh, he birdies the 10th hole, proceeds to chip in from behind the 12th green uh, for a birdie, um, which, again, he, he talks about how great he played on that back nine. He's still Icarito, this ball, back left of that of that um, that pin. I, rem- I feel like I remember watching this part live when he chipped in there. But okay. uh, the film also takes time for a quick drive-by on Norman. Um gotta say he's got an absolutely sick drip going <laughs> love this whenever norman busts out the white like straw hat yeah. that's when he looks his absolute best he's got yeah. a, a, a killer vest on I'm, I'm not hating at all on this image that's up on the screen now this is a great drip but the drive-by is uh he goes into the water on 15 and shoots 77 so he will uh he will not be winning the masters this year Tiger steps up on 13 uh hits a three wood around the corner hits a six iron on and two putts for birdie um, he, uh, then steps up on 15 and he, again, great detail on this on the book to say like, they knew the cover yardage on the, I believe what he's referring to are the gumdrops, uh, in the middle of the fairway on 15 to say like, if you cover these mounds in the fairway, the ball is going to run. It's going to run down there. It's a speed slot and it's going to get way down there. And my dude, let me tell you, this ball got way down there because he has 150 yards into the 500-yard hole with 1997 equipment uh, and hits a pitching wedge into it, makes eagle. Um, so we are, we've are we turned it four over par. We are one under par for the tournament six holes later. He goes on to birdie uh, the 17th hole, par the 18th, almost, almost made a birdie on the 18th hole to shoot a back 930 and shoot 70 uh, in the opening round of the 1997 Masters. Plays himself right back into the tournament. Probably the only other golf of anyone else that we're going to discuss at any point uh, happens happens next was John Houston misses the trees on 18 to the right. Like he's on, he's over by 10 fairway in the rough. Any estimations as to where this shot ends up? I got to think back left in the in the patrons there, right? He I fucking mean, holds this. What? He hold this <laughs> shot from over on 10 to shoot 67 and take the opening round lead. Holy shit. <laughs> like way right on 18. Again, there's more trees over there now, but he holds it from the wrong hole into 18. He shoots 67. Paul Stankowski shoots 68. I don't think I've ever seen anybody way right. I've seen people way left over in that like no man's land uh, where it's like used to be the driving range way back in the day. But uh, it, like Spieth was over there by the bathroom once uh, and certainly Scotty hit it over there. Like, but I've never seen someone so far right that they were in 10 fairway. Uh, Paul Azinger shoots 69 again. He's going to be paired with Tiger the next day. Um, and that is it for Thursday. Constantina Roca, Jose Maria Olafable and Nick Price are at 
uh, minus one and T5 after round one. I, I, the last thing I have to clear out here is this sick image of uh, Tiger, Fred Couples, and Greg Norman playing a practice. I believe this was in 1996. I was supposed to show this part uh, of it earlier, but absolutely sick drip on pretty much everyone involved yeah. here. All right. Big trivia question here. Yeah. The uh, Tiger is traveling with a bunch of buddies, including his friends, uh, his friend Jerry Chang, who he refers to a lot over the course of this week. They finished the round at Augusta uh, on that Thursday. He goes and hits some balls on that Thursday. But where did they go for dinner that night? Did they go to either Hooters or T-Bone's Steakhouse? You're along the right line of thinking, but they have the meats, and they're thinking Arby's. Arby's. Uh, They went to Arby's (laughs) on Thursday night and proceeded to go to Arby's every after every round the rest of the week. That's awesome. That's awesome. Something you could only get away with when you're 21 years old. Uh, but <laughs> even after the champions dinner on Sunday, or the, the they re upped at Arby's, on, they on went Sunday. to Arby's on the way home as well. Oh, so, man, I would love to know what Tiger ordered at Arby's like every single night. But that he would didn't be... get into that, which no. makes me think that might be a made up story, also, mm-hmm. that they didn't really actually go. But Friday afternoon, Tiger's off at 229 with Paul Azinger. He's got blue on gray, wearing some nice white kicks, looking a little more athletic on this day. Just goes out, chips in for birdies on two. Uh, Bogey's the third hole, but birdies five and eight to go out in 34. Makes a clutch par on the ninth hole. Very, very sign of the times here. He hits fluff with the double fist pound where you do the both. <laughs> yes. You know, you alternate who, on top. Yes. whose hands go on top. Yep. Hits him with that. He's got the very serious face going, uh, walking off the ninth green. It is firm. Again, let me emphasize it is very firm at this Augusta National, uh, th- this year at Augusta National. Tiger gets up and just lambasts one around the corner on 13. He's got eight iron in from 170 and sends it right over the flag. And I've never heard this part. In his book, he talks about how uh, he credited. He's got he's got an eagle putt from about 20 feet long of the hole. Mm-hmm. He credited the Golf Channel and their studio in Orlando for letting him into their tape room to study old film of the Masters. That's awesome. I've yeah. never heard of him doing this. He lived in Orlando at the time, yeah. went into the studio, and he said he had watched that putt a million times. He had watched. He knew that it broke less than it looked, and it seemingly almost broke uphill. <laughs> he drains the eagle putt, takes sole possession of first place. Jim Nance will tell the story to say, he says, it's. I think it's 5.39 p.m., and Tiger Woods is leading the Masters, Masters. for the first time. He, again, this was 22 holes ago. He was at plus four. He's now at six under par. Uh, and would not relinquish relinquish the lead again. Uh, steps up, hits a sand wedge into 14, makes birdie. He either drives it into the crosswalk on 15 and takes a drop, or it finished a foot behind the crosswalk. I mean, this wing was way, way, way down there. Hits another wedge in, hits it to 15 feet, two putts for birdie. Uh, he would post a 66 on this day, and... It would uh, leave Monty just looking like this. Who uh, <laughs> Monty shot a sixty-seven and is asked about it. It would, uh, you know, would be paired with Tiger on the next day. We'll get to some of that. But Tiger shoots sixty-six and now has a three-shot lead at the halfway point of the Masters. Monty would say, um, you know, you can hear the roars out there, and you, it's obvious who did it and what it was. You can tell the difference between an eagle roar and a birdie, uh, birdie roar. But mostly, I just wanted to show this Monty image, and we'll get uh, into some more. <laughs> Monty stuff. But again, after shooting this 60, 66 cat heads to the range after his last nine holes were 30, 34, 32 hits mm. two buckets of balls with Butch 
Nick Faldo shoots an 81 to miss the cut by a mile, and that is pretty much it for him. He never won again. Yeah. Uh, this was a year removed from him winning the 96 Masters, and he never won again. But in, involved in some personal strife, of, as I believe we have documented that many times. This <laughs> pretty is, uh... much in all of these, yes. <laughs> Which is, I mean, gosh, it's kind of, I, I don't want to say it's sad, but I mean, again, we've covered almost every year of the major since 91. That dude was mm. there. He was always, yep. always there, always a factor. Um, him and Norman, and it just would never be the same for for either of them after that 96 Masters. But Woods is at minus, eight, minus eight, Monty at minus five, Constantino Roca at four, uh, Fred Couples, Jose Maria Olafable, and Jeff Sluman at three, Azinger, Price, Stankowski at minus two. I, I'd have to double check this. I don't think any of Tiger's playing partners during this Masters broke par. He just did whatever he did to them, and and uh, that that was the beginning of the of the Tiger effect. Mm-hmm. Monty, yeah, of course, just, you know, left the course, went home, got in bed, didn't say anything at all. Uh, of course, he did. He definitely didn't. No, he definitely didn't say, comment at all. Yeah, can't imagine he had anything to say. He wouldn't say the pressure is mounting and I have a lot more experience in major championships than he has. <laughs> uh, this is, I believe, from Golf Digest. David Howell said, I remember Colin's comment after the second round. He said, I'll be hitting first into the hole. Let's see what Tiger does when I put it next to it or something to that effect. I think that's a comment that Colin has always regretted. Uh, Butch Harmon said, I reminded Tiger of that just as he left the putting green and went to the first tee. I put my arm around him and said, let's show Colin Montgomery who you really are. And he said, oh, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> I'm Tiger. about to snatch his soul from his body. <laughs> Tiger uh, would say, uh, definitely motivated me. He had more experience, no doubt about that, but he hadn't won a major, neither had I. If someone who had won a major championship had said that, then I would have let it pass. But since I, he, since he hadn't won one either, I thought we were on a clean slate. He would also say about Saturday, uh, the course got a little bit wet overnight. He was hitting low draws, so the ball would tumble and the mud would come off the ball. That's either total bullshit or that's how in command he was uh, of uh, his golf ball in this time period. Saturday is the day that he wins the 1997 Masters. And uh, you can see by this first tee shot that, listen, Monty, he was just not going to be a threat to Tiger uh, at any point during this day. Monty's got a big cotton uh, just, Callaway golf sweater vest on. Just just two athletes in their prime. Right here. Just the most athletic men you could imagine. Um, this is the day of the walk-in uh, on Saturday. He birdies the second hole, uh, but really bungles the the third hole and ends up having 20 feet for uh, for par. Uh, you can testify to this image that uh, to the podcast listeners, he is walking this in from deep. Uh, this ball is a foot away from the hole at least. Um, this would not be the, the last time he would do this. He would birdie the fifth hole, uh, walks this one in on the sixth. Only problem is this one actually lipped out, uh, but he he was absolutely feeling himself, uh, gets up to seven and walks in a birdie there. He has iron into the eighth and he hits this like moon ball. He is almost like fading away from the hole as he hits it because of the upslope and it takes like nine to 10 seconds in the air or it feels like it, it comes down an elevator shaft, hits it to 18 feet, two putt birdie. Uh, finishes pars and makes a par on nine. He has played his last 36 holes in 16 under par. He is nine clear halfway through the Saturday round. Uh, and he's just, he had taken the lead 13 holes ago. And this is the leaderboard. He is 12 under par Sluman at three under kite at three under and Monty, uh, at two under he had, uh, exited, uh, Monty went out in 39, uh, after tiger went out in 32. So, 
Well, it's just, he just had so much more experience. He was just, you know, <laughs> he was just trying to bait Tiger into thinking that it would be easy. You know, he'd reel him in eventually, I'm sure. The 11th hole is so, so different during this time period. Um, the, the tee is, you know, further to the left than it is now. And Tiger, it's so wide. Tiger can just blow balls around this corner that nobody else could really get an angle to the right. He hits it around that corner, has a perfect angle in to the back left pin. He hits a nine iron just short of it. We've made a lot of jokes over the years about uh, in, in the dramatic reading of Armin Katayan's uh, 19, uh, Tiger Woods book about the shot that Butch Harmon had had worked with them on so much, like the knockdown nine iron shot, the shot that he did not have for so long. He hits it on this shot. And in the book, it is very funny. Uh, the audio book is very funny narrated to say, I hit the shot, Butch. I did it. Did you see it? I hit it. He, uh, <laughs> he does hit the shot into 11, and you can guess what happens next. Walking he it walks in. in the birdie putt. He would go long in two on the, uh, uh, into uh, the 13th hole, and the pin is actually in the back right, so he's in a really difficult spot. And he would later describe it as, people will never know how difficult that shot is unless they're down there. I had a spot, and he makes a gesture to you know, motion about two and a half feet wide. About this far of a spot, I had to land the ball into and then spin it on top of that, then have it kick left, then get up on the green, and then check. That's a pretty tough shot. Yeah. Um, Gosh. <laughs> he does it, and he says it's the best shot that he played all week long. He actually didn't make the birdie putt, I don't think, but gets warned for slow play on 14. Uh, has to hit six iron into 15. I'm not sure what happens there, but hits the green. Two putt birdie. Sand wedge into 18. Hits it long right to, uh, to the back right pin. Sucks it back to within a foot. Uh, makes birdie at the last to shoot 65. Missed one green. Missed one fairway. Uh, 32, 33, seven birdies, no bogeys. Um, would say after the round, uh, my game is pretty good right now. I'm driving it well. I'm hitting my irons, controlling my distances, and I'm actually thinking well. And that's a pretty good combination. Well, I'm getting getting a lot of good yardages. Yeah. I was hitting my spots. <laughs> also, he, he talks about the putting tip his dad gave him before leaving the house on Thursday, but said that the tip was too complicated to share. Oh, Monty would just, again, Monty just not like looking his best in the press conference after this just looks like he's seen a ghost um, would be quoted as saying, I appreciated that he hit the ball long and straight. I appreciated that his iron shots were very accurate. I did not appreciate how he putted. What? And he like, he like waits for laughter. I think what he's saying, uh, he's like in, complimenting in, him. Okay. He is. He's complimenting. Him. I think he's saying this in terms of like going into it, like I had appreciation for how far he hit it and how good his irons were, but the putting is what really surprised me. But it's a weird kind of quote uh, on its own. But he, uh, yeah, and he says when you add it all together, he's nine shots clear, and I'm sure that will be higher tomorrow. Rick Riley writing, he said after uh, playing with Woods on Saturday, Montgomery staggered in, looking like a man who had seen a UFO. He plopped his weary meatiness into the interview chair and announced blankly, "There is no chance." We are all human beings here. There's no chance humanly possible. And when asked about last year, uh, he said, you know, in reference to Norman blowing a six-shot lead and losing the Masters to Faldo by five, he said, this is very different. Faldo's not lying second for a start, and Greg Norman's not Tiger Woods. Ooh. You know what I got to say, Sully? We give Monty grief, and you know he's an easy person to kind of joke about. Well, what a great quote he was, like, all throughout, like, he said interesting shit, whether it was like controversial or whether it was dumb or whether he was putting his foot in his mouth or whatever. We'll, we'll get to some of it during my turn uh, at the US Open. But I, I very much appreciated Monty's uh, willingness to speak his truth. 
I think he learned a little lesson after this one, uh, much in the same way that Curtis Strange would later learn a lesson about speaking on Tiger Woods. Do you remember who plays himself into the final pairing with the cat? Is it Tom Kite? It is not. It is Constantina Roca. Okay. Uh, Tom Kite would finish second ultimately, but Roca will be playing uh, in the final pairing with Tiger Woods um, and would, of course, go on to shoot 75. Uh, that's how it goes. But uh, do you remember what happened on Sunday morning, A uh, maybe maybe in the early afternoon, a, a, a competitor that had finished up his round on Sunday? Uh, what happened uh, that day? Because this is the one, the thing that I almost forgot to include in this. I do remember this. I remember, uh, I, I can't remember who he did the interview with, but Fuzzy Zeller is out by the big tree and he is, I think it's a local TV station maybe. Uh, and he's trying to sort of compliment Tiger uh, in the way of like, oh, this is amazing. Uh, and of course, in his uh, southernness, I guess is the nicest way to put it, uh, makes a one of the all-time uh, fucked up comments in the history of uh, professional sports, I would say. Worse than I remembered it. It was, it's worse than I remembered it. Uh, he said he's going, he's doing quite well, pretty impressive. That little boy is driving well and he's putting well, he's doing everything it takes to win. So, you know what you guys do, uh, do when he gets in here, you pat him on the back and say, congratulations and enjoy it and tell him not to serve fried chicken next year. Got it. And he walks away and then says, or collard greens or whatever the hell they serve. Uh, he would later issue, uh, so th- th- that clip did not come out for like another week or another couple okay. days. It did not come out that day. Um, but uh, when it did, Tiger was like off the grid when it happened. And Tiger, again, in the book, like addresses that how disappointed he was in it. Fuzzy would later uh, take out a page in the New York Times, I believe, to issue an apology and in very 1997 way of apologizing. Uh, my comments were not intended to be racially derogatory, and I apologize for the fact that they were misconstrued in that fashion. Oh, um, yeah. I, then this next part, this is this it's where it gets pretty tough. I've been on tour for 23 years, and anybody who knows me knows that I'm a jokester. It's too bad that something I said in jest was turned into something it's not, but I didn't mean anything by it, and I'm sorry if I offended anybody. If Tiger is offended by it, I apologize to him too. If you were offended, I take offense. You know what's fucking, I've thought about this a number of times over the years. And like, first of all, fried chicken is fucking delicious. And like, you know, the idea that like, oh, tell them not to serve fried chicken is not that's racist. A, that's the most offensive part of all this. No, uh, that's, I actually, I actually want to double down though. I think the most offensive part is whatever the hell it is they serve. That, that would clearly shows like a divide of like those people. Like the, it's not just Tiger serving this alleged, like literally Tiger's, serving cheeseburgers the following year like he's as, as american as as anybody uh and so the idea that like one person one group would not be seen as like american as an other is super insulting but just that like tiger woods would then represent this other like they serve that's just so awful it's so fucking like truly bigoted and horrible that you know, I, th- I remember Kmart dropped him or whatever. Oh, dang it, so that he, was my next. He <laughs> yeah. got dropped by fucking Kmart, Kmart baby. Kmart, <laughs> woke ass Kmart dropped dropped Fuzzy Zeller. <laughs> oh, uh, you know what? I think it's so like it's it truly speaks to fucking golf that this yes. was not the last fried chicken fucking comment of Tiger Woods's career. Like 15 how, years later, how fucked you? up is that? That later on, 15 years later. Sergio Garcia would step in the same fucking bigoted shit. 
and say, you know, we'll serve fried chicken after they had, you know, their spat at the players. Just I, the, the part, the reliving part for me that got me was little boy. Like that was like, whoa, fuck me. I mean, I remember the, the collard greens and the fried chicken comment, but that that's just a really, really tough scene. And even more insulting to like try to pass it off as a joke. Like, yeah, I, I, I think I would, I would venture to say that black people are probably hundreds of years away from being able to, to joke about a lot of this, like hear this joke from, from white people on this, especially with how golf uh, is, is, you know, golf is at this time. So darn it. I was really hoping to drop that Kmart bomb. Kmart thing, that, sorry. Was, that was one of my favorite. <laughs> that was one of my favorite. Uh, so Sunday at the masters uh, again, and the bookie talks a lot about blown leads at the masters and how in 1980, I don't, I don't, I'm uh, unaware of this. Seve had a 10 shot lead going into Amen corner in 1980. And when he left Amen corner, the lead was three. Just three holes later, he would go on to win, but he kept just, he was very well versed in the history of golf and was just adamant that it was not over. Talked a lot about how big of a score you could make on the 12th hole, which is ironic because he would end up making a 10 there uh, just a few years ago. And just kept saying like, he needed to play like a mistake free round of golf, needed to play very well. It could, could happen. You know, Constantino Roca could shoot 63. Uh, and, you know, the second you make a mistake, it can really double down on you. He is not ready to be crowned just yet. And I, I, it sounds very believable. Like he's very process, process based. And uh, um, he rolls up in his Sunday red. Uh, the brand not quite as strong just yet. He's got the black kind of stripes underneath the sleeve on the red. I, I, I'm excited for when it goes to full red. I don't know if you remember this one because he's, he has this sweater on when he finishes. Like that's the image that people remember the really baggy sweater, but pars the first hole hits an eight iron into two and makes birdie eight, again, eight iron into a par five um, hits six iron into the fourth hole. When Raka hits one iron again, that's just from the same tee. That's the, the, the club gap between them is five clubs. <laughs> he makes bogey on both the fifth and seventh holes. And then pulls his second shot on eight way left into a spot underneath the trees. It's a front pin. Uh, he has got a huge mound between him and the hole. And he, he Ben Crenshaw said it, it, you could hit a bucket of balls and not hit one as close as he does. He has this incredible Come bump on. shot that rolls up to like three to four feet. And he makes that for birdie and kind of gets back on the uh, back on the, on the, on the proper train. He uh, hits wedge into 11 rolls in the birdie putt raises the putter. He's now 16 under par, 10 shots clear, has a six iron into 13. He's on in two again, another two putt birdie. He left the legal, the eagle putt on the lip there. Hits three wood lob wedge into 14, absolutely stuffs it, and is the first player in Masters history to uh, reach 18 under par. This is an image of Tommy Tolles' shirt for some reason that got mixed up into, into, into this series of images here. I appreciate here, but, it, yeah. Um, they post 18 under 18. through 14. Uh, and they show an image of his dad watching on the monitor, uh, the, the, the tiny monitor there behind the 18th green. His dad is not in good shape at this time, has not spent much time uh, at the golf course, but uh, was not going to be uh, missing this moment. Um, he's interviewed before uh, Tiger finishes his round and asked what emotion he's feeling. Uh, Earl would, repri uh, would reply saying, pride, pride. Uh, and... Uh, as he gets to the 15th hole, the baggy sweater is now on. Um, he drives it into the crosswalk on the 17th green. Again, it's just the most prodigious display of golf that the world really had ever seen to that point. I mean, it's just hard to describe. Again, this is a time period with balada balls, small driver heads, when like the risk of hitting it 330 was there. Like it, if you wailed on the ball and hit it offline, bad, bad things happened. 
No one else in the field was capable of hitting it to where the spots he's hitting it. And he just reduced it down to a wedge contest. Uh, the par fives were truly par fours for him. He made it a par 68. Uh, shout out to Bryson. And uh, it's just it just looks like he's playing a totally different sport. Uh, just total domination. Um, blows it way left on 18. Parts the crowd. Couldn't find Fluff. Uh, like Fluff gets lost in the group of people. And they and, and they he was out there working on to try and triangulate a yardage. Hits his shot way up on the top, um, and he needs a two-putt to break the record. He says he didn't allow himself to enjoy it just yet because he had a quadruple-breaking putt. Um, hits the putt six feet by and has to play it outside the hole. Uh, he pours it in. There it is, a win for the ages. Uh, makes the fist pump. Uh, they cut and show uh, an image of uh, Earl and his mom, Catilda. Our guy, uh, Hughes Norton, his agent at the time, uh, in, his, in the background there. Uh, it was a great podcast guest we had uh, a, a couple years back now. Comes off the green. Everyone knows what image is next. Uh, he is there hugging his dad just behind 18 green. We get to the, the green jacket ceremony. The jacket is baggy. It's, it's not a tight fit in 1997. Uh, and he says to the people, he says, my pops told me this was going to be one of the hardest rounds of golf you're, you're going to play in your life. If you just go out there and be yourself, it'll be one of the most rewarding rounds you'll play in your life. And he was right. Before this or right after this, he gets a phone call from uh, he, he, somebody says, the president wants to speak to you. And he's like, oh, president, I just saw the, ch the chairman right outside. He's like, no, the president <laughs> of the United States. Uh, Bill Clinton called to congratulate him. Final leaderboard would read Tiger at minus 18, Tom Kite at minus six, Tommy Tolls minus five, Tom Watson at minus four, Roca and Stankowski at minus three and T5. Uh, this was going to be the most fun part uh, of the show, but uh, you've, you've spoiled this part. But uh, as they leave the grounds and they, you know, the comment uh, you, you mentioned earlier about the, the you know, the dinner. Uh, no, 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 no. I, we, we're prepared. We're prepared here. We're prepared. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. They get ready to go down Magnolia Lane. And do, do you hear it? Because I know I do. The Cadillac that Jerry had been driving around all week, and they said this song has never been played. Of course, rolling down Magnolia Lane, the hip hop group Quad City DJs that we popular, know it. the popular song, "Come On and Ride It," quote the train, <laughs> uh, is blaring out the windows, rolling down Magnolia Lane. Um, and he is, of course, the Masters champion. Uh, he said they went back to the house, not before, uh, of course, stopping at Arby's on that Sunday night. Uh, he said, I was not a big drinker, but I was the Masters champion, and everyone was going to town that night. Uh, later that night, after much celebration, I fell asleep fully clothed and hugging that green jacket like a blanket. Um, he said he woke up with a massive headache. He had a charity day the next day in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, he had to fly to that. He said it was an all-day party, and the libations continued. Those are, the, those are his words in the book. Uh, <laughs> from Columbia, he left for Cancun because he had a sponsorship with Planet Hollywood and their all-star <laughs> cafes. <laughs> This is like Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> and I think Schwarzenegger maybe were the three, the Planet Hollywood uh, dudes. It was like the competing Hard Rock Cafe uh, thing. God, that's awesome. I believe the phrase was Planet Hollywood and their authentic all-star cafes. Uh, it was why he was going to Cancun right after it. Oh, oh look, it's, it's Bruce Willis. That's sick. Uh, but he was off the grid. That's kind of when the fuzzy stuff blew up. And uh, when he got back, that's when he, he kind of had to address it. But um, 
Going into uh, some of the writing that would come afterwards, our guy Rick Riley, of course, commemorated this uh, for Sports Illustrated. He said, it didn't matter who you were. If you were there the week everything changed in golf, you just had to reach out and touch a piece of history. Almost 50 years to the day after Jackie Robinson broke Major League Baseball's color barrier at Augusta National, a club that no black man was allowed to join until six years ago. At the tournament, whose founder, Clifford Roberts, once said, as long as I'm alive, golfers will be white and the caddies will be black. A 21-year-old black man delivered the greatest performance ever seen in a golf major. Someday, Eldrick Woods, a mixed-race kid with middle-class background who grew up on a municipal course in the sprawl of Los Angeles, may be hailed as the greatest golfer who ever lived. But it is likely that his finest day will always be the overcast Sunday in Augusta when he humiliated the world's best golfers, shot an 18 under par 270, and won the Masters by a preposterous 12 shots. It was the soundest whipping in a major this century and second only to old Tom Morris's 13-shot triumph at the 1862 British Open. Uh, When Tiger finally slipped into his uh, green uh, champion's jacket, his 64-year-old father, Earl, drank in a long look and said, green and black go well together, don't they? Uh, this is a great Riley. I could have read the whole thing. I actually, I was going to look into getting in touch with Rick Riley and having him reread that uh, for this part of the pod, because I feel like this is just, uh, he commem- he, you know, this is a, a seminal moment in golf. And I think he really captured the moment, but another part of it, he says it was something to see the way a six to 155 pounder with a 30 inch waist crumbled. One of golf's masterpieces into bite-sized pieces. The longest club he hit into a par four all week was a seven iron. On each of the first two days, he hit wedge into the 500-yard par 5 15th hole for his second shot. Honey, he shrunk the course. Last Saturday, his seven birdies were set up by his nine iron, pitching wedge, sand wedge, putter, nine iron, putter, and sand wedge. Meanwhile, the rest of the field was trying to catch him with five irons and three woods and rosary beads. When Nicholas said last year that Woods would win 10 green jackets, everyone figured that he was way off. We just never thought his number was low. Um, said Jesper Parnovic, who finished 19 shots back. Unless they build Tiger Tees about 50 yards back, he's going to win the next 20 of these. Uh, narrator, they would uh, actually build those Tiger Tees, and he would not win the next 20 of these. Uh, um, it was a week like nobody had seen at Augusta National. Never before had scalpers prices for a weekly badge been so high. Some were asking $10,000. Even after it was all done, a seemingly useless badge was fetching up to $50 outside the club's gates. Never before had one player attracted such a large following. Folks might have come out with the intention of watching another golfer, but each day the course seemed to tilt toward whoever Woods was playing. Everybody else was Omar (laughs) Uresti. Never before had so many people stayed at the course so long, filling the stands behind the practice range, 1,500 strong, to watch a lone player hit thrilling wedge shots under the darkening Georgia sky. It was the highest-rated golf telecast in history, yet guys all over the country had to tell their wives that the reason they couldn't help plant the rhododendrons was they needed to find out whether the champion would win by 11 or 12. (laughs) Only 47-year-old Tom Kite, who would finish second in the same sense that Germany finished second in World War II, (laughs) (laughs) refused to give up. Oh, fuck. God, the... The World War II jokes sprinkled throughout golf sports writing has just cracked me up so much. Poor Tom Kite being grouped in with Germany. (laughs) This one rocked me good. (laughs) 
Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, he said he was a schnauzer with his teeth locked on the tailpipe of a Greyhound bus it was a, as it was pulling into Beltway traffic. How can you be so optimistic when Woods is leading by nine shots? Well, said Kite, we've got it down to single digits, don't we? Uh, there seemed to be co- some kind of combat for mortals going on behind Woods for second place, but nothing you needed to notice. Nobody came within a light year. Raka, uh, Roka and Tom Watson each trimmed the lead to eight, but mentioning it at all is like pointing out that the food on the Hindenburg was pretty good. <laughs> At the very end, Woods made it to the elegant uh, Augusta National Clubhouse dining room for a traditional winner's dinner. As he entered, the members and their spouses stood and applauded politely as they have for each champion. Applauded as he made his way to the seat at the head of the table under a somber oil painting of President Eisenhower. But clear in the back, near a service entrance, the black cooks and waiters and busboys ripped off their oven mitts and plastic gloves, put their dishes and trays down for a while, hung their napkins over their arms, and clapped the loudest and the hardest and the longest for any kind of winner they never dreamed would come through those doors. One of my favorite scenes in ever in a golf piece, and I've always wondered as someone who's covered now the Masters four times, like how he got that, because I I would be surprised. Maybe back then you could sort of follow the champion through the clubhouse into the the big dinner but if you tried to do that now they would absolutely like throw you in the in jail uh i've I've tried to follow like champions around just to get more color and extra stuff like and it's very hard to get that kind of color i have a feeling it came from the workers because there is some great just pieces that other journalists had gotten uh, talking to some of the workers there and what this moment meant um isaac lee um is quoted in the statesman journal saying just you know, talking about some of this, but talking about the racism at the club, he says, it's not as bad as it used to be here, but everybody around here knows their place. It's a good job. As long as they don't show the racism too blatantly, it's okay. Wow. Which like, yeah, that that one kind of rocked me a little bit. But you wouldn't say that now because like you certainly would lose your job, I would think, like, you know, embarrassing the club, right? And it because shows you like the difference between something can go viral and someone can be sort of like spread all around the world and Augusta would have to answer it. Like you give a quote to the Idaho statesman or whatever it is or the, and that's never, no one, Fred Ridley is never going to see that or whatever. It's no. that's fascinating to think about. Lee Elder made the trip up and got a speeding ticket on the way on that Sunday. He wanted to see the final round. Tiger did, uh, did see him there. He said he was thinking a lot about, uh, about Lee Elder and about Charlie Sifford, um, uh, you know, who was not allowed to play in the masters or not invited to play in the masters, despite winning a PGA tour event. Um, I, I should have known this. I guess I didn't know this. Did you know Charlie Tiger's son is named after Charlie Sifford? I did. Yep. I did. I definitely should have, but did not know that. Lee Elder said it might have more potential than Jackie Robinson breaking into baseball. No one will ever turn their head again when a black walks to the first tee. Tiger would add in that Michael Jordan, President Clinton, called to congratulate me. The story about, uh, oh, that Mr. President. Okay, thank you. So that's pretty much it. I mean, there is, uh, again, the, the book is fantastic, and it does go into what happens next for him, changing his swing and why. And uh I was listening to it on a walk and I was like, gosh, it does make a lot more sense. I know people have criticized it a lot, but he is pretty clear about saying, you know, exactly what was wrong in his swing and the timeline needed to fix it. And uh, it's hard to argue with what came 99 into the early 2000s later from that. But he would average 323 yards off the tee that week, 25 yards longer than the next player. 
Um, he would not make the most birdies. That was Tom Watson made 22 birdies, but he set the record lowest 72 hole score, youngest winner, widest margin of victory, low middle 36 holes, low first 54 holes, low final 54 holes, most under par on the second nine, most threes on a winner's card and rounds better than the field. He shot the low round of the day twice uh, during that week, which is wild. Uh, prices on Tiger to win the Grand Slam fell from 5,000 to one to a panicked 66 to one. <laughs> and then I got I, a hat tip to uh, to you on this one that found this story that I, I almost certainly would have missed. But uh, there's a, a fantastic Ken Green story. This is from Golf Digest. He said, my last Masters was in 1997. And once again, I had a ton of friends fly down for the tournament. The night before the first round, a bunch of them were outside the rental home playing hoops when I walked out to observe the talentless crew. At some point between the rainbow air balls, triple dribbles, and diabetes, asthma, inhaler timeouts, the ball rolled under a car in the driveway. So, of course, I reached out to grab it for them. My Connecticut buddy, Doug Ramey, who was just walking out of the house, kiddingly gave me a bump on the ass. Little did he know, I was just then reaching for the ball, and the contact broke my thumb. The next day, I played awful, and I shot 87. I was going to withdraw because it was pointless to try to play a pro golf event with a bum hand. Then I found out I was paired with the king, Arnold Palmer, for the second round. Arnold was a hero of mine, and this was the only time I would ever play with him. There was no way I was quitting now. The next day, Arnold was a joy to play with. He told me stories that were just classics and so funny. I gave him my word I wouldn't tell anyone. Let it never be said that I can't be discreet. When we got to the 14th hole, I realized I'd probably never have another chance to have a beer with the king. As I walked up the 14th, I sent my friend Ertz to the concession stand to buy a beer, which he gave me as we teed off on 15. I then walked up to Arnie and said, Arnie, this has been an absolute blast, and I'll never have a better chance to have a beer with you, so I salute you. Uh, he looked at me and said, you should have brought me one. Uh, <laughs> for that, I was initially fined by the tour but I had my buddy write a letter claiming the beer was non-alcoholic and the fine was rescinded. I can attest today, however, there was nothing alcohol-free about that beer. I was like, how could you honestly believe that was the truth? Ken Green, truly one of the great characters of this era of golf. Like, I don't know if he's listening out there on the slim chance that he is. Like, we would like to have you on the podcast because you tell some amazing stories. The earlier story in this is that he... His was going through a divorce at this time, and his ex-wife refused to give him his master's tickets. He had like 10 tickets. And so he basically snuck guys through the gates in his trunk of his car and, and was like, there's there's no trip. other way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so they started like uh, searching his car by the weekend. And he would like make multiple trips outside. Yeah, he's he's a character. There's gonna be some stories there, but that was lengthy. I promise when we get to the open, it will not be as lengthy, but uh, that is the moment the golf changed forever. It is also the moment as I was getting into my open, we're going to get to the U.S. Open. Yeah, you're going to go next year. But as it got into the open championship, it was like already like, all right, well, I, this is what's going on, on the leaderboard. But what, what's Tiger doing? What's he doing? Like, what, what's going on here? You know, he might be off the lead right now, but what's he doing right now? And that that effect takes place immediately following this tournament. Literally, like the idea of like a Tiger Tracker, right? You remember Tiger Tracker was like one of the first accounts we all followed. Every newspaper in America became like a Tiger Tracker at this point because it, the the amount of interest that people had in him versus 
the Germanys of the world was insignificant. Our friends at ZipRecruiter conducted a recent survey and found that the top hiring challenge employers face for 2024 is a lack of qualified candidates. But if you're an employer and need to hire, here's good news. ZipRecruiter has smart tools and features that help you find more qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com NLU. Here's how ZipRecruiter's tools and features help you find the best people for your roles. As soon as you post your job, ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology shows you candidates whose skills and experience match it. And you can use ZipRecruiter's invite to apply feature to send top candidates a personalized invite to encourage them to respond to your job post. And when you use ZipRecruiter's rating tool to rate your candidates, they send you more matches from new profiles that are created on the site. Let ZipRecruiter help you conquer the biggest hiring challenge, finding qualified candidates. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive website right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash NLU. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash NLU. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Back to the pod. So the 1997 U.S. Open held at Congressional Country Club, first time Congressional had ever hosted a major, uh, was played at 7,213 yards. And if you'll indulge me with apologies to Dan Hicks, I want to read Dan Hicks's opener uh, in my best TVC, TV voice here. Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, a place where our nation's course is charted. And this year, a place where a very important caucus has been arranged, America's best and brightest, a strong contingent of international dignitaries, as well as the world's newest ambassador, Tiger Woods, have all gathered in an attempt to conquer golf's toughest test. The puns about, like, our nation's capital and shaping of laws and stuff are heavy in pretty much <laughs> everything that has been uh been written here so do you remember anything particular about the the course setup at congressional uh particularly the finish at congo is the 18th hole a par three it is for the first time in 88 years the u.s open will end on a par three because they flipped 17 and 18 there is sort of a big pond that fronts 18 uh this is sort of the uh, source of some controversy because Congo had been sort of redone a couple times here and there, and there was some discussion of, like, can't really end in a par three. Uh, David Fay, the director of the USGA at that point, said, the club has been through so many changes. It was ready to have a Caterpillar tractor for a logo. It was time to say enough already. Besides, when we looked at the big picture, we decided having a par three as a finisher is a strength, not a weakness. We have transformed the viewing for almost 20,000 people and we'll be able to see approach shots putting on 17 and the entire play on 18 when this will come into play later. That's as good as it gets on an open course. It will be spectacular. Because for, if I'm remembering right, uh, so what is now 18, that like kind of weird peninsula green is the 17th hole for this U.S. Open and 18 played for if you're if you're thinking of congressional if you watch the 2011 u.s open the 10th green plays like the famous rory shot plays from the clubhouse across the pond to that green site but if you flip that that's where the 1997 par three was and it played as 18 so the 2011 10th green would be where the t was for the 97th 1997 u.s open 18th t and you play back towards the 10th T from 2011. Do I have that right? I believe you have that correct. But if there's any congressional member who wants to come and correct us, uh, you're welcome to do so. But well, I think get this we our... now, even the current version of it, now right. that now it, that 10th hole does not even cross that pond anymore. And they've mm -hmm. redone that again. So it's very, very confusing. Jaime Diaz pointed out uh, the first time I thought, I've always remembered this as a kid, is that like 
yes, it's weird. Yes, it might be controversial, but guess what? For the first time in history, the like recordable history, the U.S. Open could end with a with a hole in one. Like you could be down, you know, by one, and all of a sudden flip the whole thing. So I just thought, like, oh, that would be so cool if that was a new thing. This U.S. Open marks forty one consecutive U.S. Opens for Jack Nicklaus. It is his one hundred and fiftieth appearance in a major. And guess who's playing? Uh, not alongside him, we don't get paired together. But guess who is also in this open? Uh, this open, Tolly. His son Gary uh, wow. is, qualifies for this uh, open. Pretty, I mean, and Gary acquits himself fairly well. A lot of sort of, uh, I would say, Tiger Mania. We'll get to in a sec, but just a few sort of fun things uh, along the way before we we delve into Tiger. Tom Weiskopf is back in the field uh, at the U.S. Open, um, and he is. He had skipped the previous year's U.S. Open and the previous year's senior U.S. Open, even though he had won the senior U.S. Open at Congressional when it was sort of, sort of held there. So I, I guess when I said it was the first major held uh, at Congo, it wasn't quite accurate. It's the first, like, uh, you know, non-senior. Non Those aren't real majors. <laughs> yeah, come on. When the last time that the senior U.S. Open was held uh, at Congo and, and, excuse me, and Weisskopf played, he shot a pair of 75s in the first two rounds to barely make the cut and was paired with an amateur, uh, David Stahl, who he then blamed afterwards for his poor play because uh, this David was a such a slow player and who repeatedly marked his ball with a shiny quarter instead of a penny. Uh, and Weisskopf said, <laughs> anyone who has ever played golf, when you are three or feet less from the hole and near someone's on, you don't mark the ball with a quarter. You mark it with a non-reflective penny. <laughs> I won't say that he was the reason that I played badly, but it was a distraction, a major distraction. <laughs> so, oh my so, God, I thought I made excuses on the golf course. <laughs> yeah. So Saul said uh, afterwards, I was crushed by the whole thing. I've never been treated like this in my life. And so Weisskopf was still answering questions about this when they came back to Congo. And basically it was like, that incident, as far as I'm concerned, was resolved the Monday after the event when I personally talked to Jim Stahl. He accepted my apology and said we were going to go on with our lives. I think for the most part we did. He wrote me a letter to confirm it. So I just thought that was like one of these random like little things where... The idea of like that you could get so pissed off at someone for not marking their ball with a penny that they would be <laughs> big letter writing phase too in golf. A lot of <laughs> yes. lot of letters being written here, but uh, also pretty easy. Like, hey man, do you mind like uh, swapping out that coin for for something less? Like, how how could you have let that go on and affect yeah. you? Like, and then go here, the here's a, here's a quarter. Mind. I have an extra one in my bag. Would you or, you know penny? Would you mind yeah. like just uh, throwing that down? So. <laughs> Uh, Tom Weisskopf, get a little prickly. This is John Daly's first major uh, since entering Betty Ford treatment for alcoholism. And so there's a lot of anticipation of like, what's what's good John going to look like? What's going to be back? He's lost a ton of weight, uh, is very sort of unsure of himself there, is a little bit nervous about, you know, doing interviews and stuff. Uh, a fun anecdote, though, I found <laughs> that dovetails of what you just told us from the Miami Herald about Daly. He asked Tiger early if he wanted to play a practice round earlier in the week. And Tiger said, yeah, sure, I'd love to. Uh, so when Tiger got there, he learned that Daly had also invited Fuzzy Zeller. <laughs> oh, my God. I did not know that. <laughs> yes. And so Tiger was like, uh, peace out. Fuck y'all. I'm not playing. Uh, and just basically walked off and went back to the range. And so uh, Fuzzy went to go and play uh, with with John Daly by himself. Uh, so Tiger was Whoa. like, "Yeah, not doing this." Tiger Mania has reached ahead here, as you said. You know, it, or Susie, it's just, at least it's picking up steam. I don't think it would reach ahead till like twenty two thousand. Uh, Eleven hundred credentials were issued for media credentials for the U.S. Open, which is four hundred more credentials than the previous one. And all the talk, of course, is can Tiger win the Grand Slam? And Tiger, to his credit, is sort of like. 
you know, he says, I think, you know, can you, can you win the Grand Slam? And he says, I think it can be done. Uh, take Phil Mickelson last year. He won four times. If you win the right four tournaments in one year, you've won the Grand Slam. That's easier said than done because major championships bring together the best players in the world under the most extreme conditions. It's a matter of peaking at the right time and having a lot of luck on your side. But if it happens, who knows? At this point, Tiger's kicked so much ass in the Masters that instead of like everyone being like, there's no way he can do this. There's there's a lot of like, actually, can this guy do this? Like maybe we should like get on board with the idea that he might be able to win the Grand Slam. Tom Watson says he might be the kind of player who comes around once in a millennium. Ben, I was a kid, so it was easy to get caught, you know, swept up in anything. But legitimately, anything felt possible coming off a twelve-shot win. It was like, could is he going to win like seventy-five percent of the time now? That, that's what I remember it feeling like. Yeah, and then truly, it was the only story that mattered. Like you talk about, like you know, Tiger Track and stuff. Like this, everybody was going to wonder, and the, and the other stories, and the, you could see. The other players on tour were starting to get a little bit annoyed of like, well, you know, that was awesome. But at the same time, the, the money hadn't quite like hit their pockets yet. So they weren't quite really wedding, writing to be OK with the idea that Tiger was going to be the only story. So just just fold it up quickly. His results after the 97 uh, Masters, he took more than a month off, then played the Byron Nelson, won that. And then T4 at Colonial, T67 at Memorial, got, he made, made cut, did not finish. Imagine sending Tiger Woods home on Sunday uh, at, the, at the memorial. And then that was the, his last start before the U.S. Open. Made cut, didn't finish. What a, <laughs> the idea that like all these fans were like, wait a minute, like you made the cut, but he, you can't have him. Like He missed know, the like, Saturday cut and they sent oh, him home because he shot a wow. 74 on that Saturday. So, Do you know the story uh, or have you ever heard the story of, of Greg Norman at the Kemper Open right before this U.S. Open? So Greg Norman, he's, he'd become friends, pretty good friends with Bill Clinton at this time. And Bill Clinton had visited uh, his house down in Australia when it was on some sort of diplomatic trip. And Bill Clinton, they had, you know, they were cigar smoking buddies. They were, you know, planning to play some golf together. And Bill Clinton sort of stumbled going up the stairs at Norman's house and tore some ligaments in his knee. And so this was like a kind of a, you know, international incident of some kind. And Norman was felt obviously like terrible. Bill Clinton couldn't golf for quite a while. You know, Bill Clinton was sort of, you know, one of the first celebrity presidents in a lot of ways. And so uh, this was a huge deal. And so at the Kemper Open this year, you could start to see Norman, as you said, you know, he never really was like the golfer that he once was, but he was still this huge like figure within the world of golf, still technically the number one player. Uh, but the the pressures of being Greg Norman and sort of, you know, things were starting to kind of wear on him. At the Kemper Open, the announcer in the first tee on Thursday said, uh, hey, it's Greg Norman. This is like their longtime announcer of the Kemper if Greg Norman invites you over to his house to see all his trophies, I'd advise you respectfully decline, referring to Clinton's fall visit. Uh, and Norman goes over to the guy after he hits his tee shot and marches into like a tent next to the tee and just like chews out the guy, just reams him, says, it was wrong. We've got a couple of announcers on the two. I think they make funny comments, but that was a bad timing. <laughs> So, was it Gary Player that was yelling at him? That might have been Gary Player. You know how hard it is to switch from from one impression to the next sometimes. So. so later in the round, Norman's on one of the he's on the 16th hole, and a fan sort of yells out, you know, "Hey, Greg, they're chumming the water." And Norman thinks at this point that he someone says, you know, "You're going to hit it in the water," instead of like, "Hey, the rest of the field is like chum in the water." And Norman goes out there and flips off the fan like twice. <laughs> <laughs> and so 
he gets, he's as he shows up at the U.S. Open, he's just getting like grilled right and left by the media, uh, and there and he's like, oh, I don't want to talk about that, you know. It's, it's not. It's we got a bunch of like crazies out here. He's he's really pissed about the sort of uh, wild uh, kind of stuff in in that chum in the water yeah back to ken green you know so after what happened at augusta ken green got suspended uh by the pga tour for a little while and so his suspension is up here and he shares kind of that one of the things that he did and that he got him suspended what is the he accused raymond floyd of being a cheater and which i had never heard like he he basically said that raymond floyd and he had played together in the masters one year and that floyd was never nice to him until he wanted to take a questionable drop and then uh, ken was like i don't know it's on you and then floyd was super nice to him after the fact i like ray floyd's like one of the toughest dudes ever yeah, i don't know why yeah. you go like throwing around shit about him being a cheater but so ken green has paid his fine for the beer drinking at this point and is allowed to i guess you know be unsuspended unsuspended at this point this is probably my favorite thing that I found in the entire thing. So, as I said before, Jack Nicholas is uh, is you know having his, his 41st open. Jack is still like a story and everywhere. People still kind of want to know, you know, can Jack compete? You know, he's he's 57 at this point, so no, but there's still kind of that hope holding on. So Nicholas talks to various people in the media about how much better he's been feeling of late. And he says, you know, that his hip was in agonizing pain, but now he's he's pain-free. And he credits uh, this mysterious alternative therapist in Lake Worth, uh, whose his name he will not reveal, but he says that this this alternative treatments have not only uh, cured his sinuses, but they've made his hip feel better, and that this therapist <laughs> is is so powerful and so mystical that he's been able to cure people of Lou Gehrig's disease. <laughs> <laughs> he, these treatments have helped people help bald men regrow hair. <laughs> The first time I went to see him, there was a lady in the waiting room told me, congratulations, your life is about to change. <laughs> oh, my, I would love to see the emails that Jack Nicholas forwards. Like he has got to get caught up in so much stuff, oh so God. many scams, so many lies. It's So I'm just reading directly from the, this is from the, uh, I think it's the Miami Herald. As part of the treatment, this therapist, for lack of a better word, because he's gone and not a doctor, heats Nicholas's blood to 104 degrees. <laughs> He gives Nicholas frequency matching treatments in which Nicholas's feet are immersed in water and an electric current is sent through his body. <laughs> like, did we almost electrocute Jack Nicholas? Did some hippie like almost kill Jack Nicholas when he was 57? Hey, he, all, he top 10 at the Masters the following year. That's this right. Man bit something I, there. There's something to this. It's all like, this, this is great. The man does not charge for his services. Instead, patients are asked to make a donation. Nicholas said he gives the man $20 a visit. <laughs> <laughs> so this life-changing therapist who doesn't charge Jack, he gives him $20. Like, I feel better than I ever have. That's worth 20 bucks. <laughs> I'm going to put it in the tip jar on my way out. <laughs> Oh fuck! <laughs> oh, oh, this we at some point we're gonna do a deep dive into Jack's like business history. Oh, this may God. have been a time when he didn't have much more than twenty bucks to his name. So that's very true. That is very true. There's, it's funny to like, see various references. Like I, no one's ever oh, really God. like done any kind of like deep dive into it, but there's always these like little hints of the golf writers of that time about how Jack was like on the verge of like going broke from dumb investments, and it, it, it makes the. Yeah. 
it makes the shit that happened where he's like you know renting out his name image and likeness to you know and he sue has to sue his own company you know yeah. make all the more sense like yeah, he sold his own firm <laughs> Arnold Palmer was swimming in money and Jack was like just sort of you know kind of stitching it together oh god $20 <laughs> for life-changing therapy donation that's fantastic <laughs> this is the first event in the tour's 97 year history that caddies were told they could wear shorts shorts were a big point of contention back then for caddies but it was going to be like 100 degrees uh, in Washington at this time and so the USGA relented and said that they could wear shorts. Uh, just a previous year, this is all true for all rounds. Tom Lehman and Davis Love were wore practice were shorts in a practice round at the PGA Championship, and were told on like the third hole they had to change immediately or they would be disqualified from the tournament. Disqualified. Disqualified from the tournament for wearing shorts. Mm. So you know, look what you made me do, Liv. You didn't you just you made you, me Liv. go off and <laughs> went off and formed to live right after this stuff. <laughs> a lot of Tiger talk here. Uh, Steve Jones, uh, you know, of the former the U.S. Open defending champ, we talked about last. He didn't want to quite put Woods on a pedestal just yet. Oh, okay. He's I a see more. he's a yeah, he's a person just like everybody else. He has to put his pants on by himself. Is he still doing that himself? Well, I don't know, Steve. I mean, it's possible that he was not getting, you know, he, people, other people were putting his pants on for him at this point, but we won't, we'll get into that during this <laughs> podcast. I guess resentment is the right word is, is like simmering a little bit. There was a whole story in the Miami Herald kind of about how while earning stripes, Tiger faces resentment uh, was the, sort of the thing here. It just sort of talks about how his, his peers on tour have a little bit of kind of like, you know, frustration with the fact that he's you know, the dude at every single thing. Davis Love is quoted saying, I think Tiger needs some friends out here to tell him some things that no one will tell him. Uh, basically, you know, because it sort of had treated some people like, you know, poorly at various things. Faxon was quoted saying, there are many players who take shots at Woods behind his back. And Faxon says, but I try not to hang around those players. So, you know, a little bit of a, a little bit of kind of bad blood already brewing. Well, I mean, you got to think too, also just this, the, the, the golf world was not highly trafficked, you know, at, at this point. And then all of a sudden, just thousands and thousands and thousands of extra media on site are there for mm -hmm. that guy. Like that, they're mm -hmm. there for that reason more than they are the golf tournament. Like the whole world just got flipped uh, on its head. It's only natural that it's still a much more reasonable reaction than, say, Fuzzy Zeller's reaction at the Masters, I would say. Mm -hmm. But uh, that kind of reaction doesn't surprise me all that much. Uh, so round one commences. And guess who shoots a 73 in round one? 57 year old Jack Nicholas. Yeah, Gary Nicholas. <laughs> Gary Nicholas also shot 73. He All and right. his father shot at the same score the first round, which is kind of amazing. Kind of kind of cool. But you know, our first round leader, uh, you wouldn't believe Colin Montgomery uh, shoots a tasty 65 in round one. Everyone sort of thought like Congo was gonna play so tough, it was gonna absolutely like kick their asses. But then, you know. Monty comes out and just blitzes it, says, I love this type of golf. I love hitting fairways. Actually means something. Par golf means something. We don't have enough of these tournaments, in my opinion. So I guess how many drivers Monty hit in route to his 65? Three. Zero. Whoa. He did not hit his driver one time. And in route to that 65, he also missed four putts inside of 10 feet. That was the greatest ball striking round I think I've ever seen, Phil Mickelson said after playing with him in round one. Hmm. Tiger Woods, in his uh, professional debut at the U.S. Open, shoots 74, spraying it all over. Uh, it's actually one under at the turn, but shot a 40 on the back nine and just kind of uh, really 
didn't have it, was super pissed, uh, stormed off the course uh, without talking to the media. And a pool reporter had to go into the locker room, try to get some quotes from him, because as we said, there's 1,100 people, media here, who really are here for Tiger and Tiger you know, alone. Uh, I want to relay this exchange that the pool reporter reported because it's classic frosty cat. Uh, reporter, colon, uh, what are you going to do right now? Tiger, I don't know. Reporter, I mean, do you plan to hit balls or Tiger? I don't know. Reporter, is there something going on with your swing? I don't know. Do you plan to talk to Butch? I don't know. Is that it? <laughs> Frosty. <laughs> Again, I just got off reading the 97 Masters book where he's always like, you know, I always talk to the media after uh, after a round, good or bad. I learned that lesson at the 1995 <laughs> Masters about that. It's like, ah, all right, the reality. That lesson was still learning. Might be a little different. Rick Riley, I, I probably learned this trick from Rick Riley, but Riley sort of followed Tiger for as long as he could, uh, where he saw him go into the uh, the parking player's parking lot, get into his courtesy car, and pick up his portable Sony CD player and slam it against the floorboards of his car, which is a <laughs> sick anecdote to be able to The see. Quad City DJ's CD <laughs> went flying. <laughs> triple A batteries flying ah. everywhere, CDs exploding. Our guy, Greg Norman, uh, fresh off of flipping off fans, uh, shoots 75, was sort of grumbling his way around the course, is a very much a non-factor in this tournament. Uh, in addition to Monty, Steve Stricker uh, shoots a four under, uh, gets into contention. Stricker had sort of switched clubs uh, prior to that year after having a good year in 96 and played poorly all of 97 and basically said, like, I like my old clubs better, but, you know, the money was too good and I had to make it work. I know I'm a good player. I'm going to make it work anyway at some point. Uh, so it's it's remarkable how, like, honest some of the quotes are from this era about this kind of stuff of like well it just was like a huge difference uh but i think he was playing like palmer brand clubs <laughs> and got a, an offer from taylor made i think is this year uh, is this a, the year of his second uh comeback second consecutive comeback player of the year award i it, i might be uh that is a good question i did not uh look a record that, that it will never be broken one because the award went away but two he steve stricker won two consecutive comeback player of the year awards which I, I don't know how that's possible, but it's one of my favorite golf facts ever. <laughs> uh, Hal Sutton gets in at four under and and Tom Lehman at three under. Uh, a player that honestly, I, I was not familiar with the old game. Hideki Kase uh, from Japan, the original Hideki. This is the only year that Hideki Kase played on the PGA Tour and the only major they ever played in. Uh, Can Hideki won. win? Yeah, exactly. Like, uh feel like that should have, you know, come into to, to vogue much sooner. Uh, Hale Irwin is also on the first round leaderboard with an even par 70. And I note this because Hale was an absolute menace on the senior tour this year. He won nine times on the senior tour in 1997. And he won in 1997, he won the senior PGA championship by 12 strokes. Yep. So Hale Irwin was basically the Tiger Woods of the senior, uh, now the champions tour uh, that year. Senior tour was like pretty darn big in this time mm -hmm. period, right? It was, it was pretty new. I think in the early nineties, it started something like that. But I, I remember seeing in some of the, the articles about 97 masters, just about like how much real estate the senior tour got in sports pages and things yeah. like that. And how it was, they're writing about that in the same, uh, same kind of article as masters lead ups and stuff. It was just yeah. a lot bigger presence than it has now. I think just because, right, like before Tiger came along, that like Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer, Lee Trevino, yeah. those were still like the biggest names in golf. And so there was this real desire to not let that go, you yeah. know? And so as much as like you would have, 
wanted to be a fan of Faldo or Nick Price or, you know, it just wasn't the same stratosphere as those guys. Sure. The second round is delayed by a two hour and 20 minute rain delay, which the softer conditions kind of help guys fire at some pins and get back into it. Tiger shoots a second round 67 that gets him inside the top 10. Uh, but Ernie Els shoots a 67 that puts him into a tie for second place. Els really took advantage of the rain delay because he had five holes left to go when the rain started, and then he came back out and played those five holes of the U.S. Open going par, birdie, 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 par to finish. Mm. But Tom Lehman, who uh, was sort of a shot off the lead, hangs around and creeps into the lead by shooting an even par 70, highlighted by a perfect approach on 17 where he hits it to four feet. Uh, so I want you to remember that shot as you sort of uh, hear this quote from Lehman. I had a feeling that I was going to win last year's tournament, and I didn't. So all you can do is keep plugging away. As long as I don't beat myself the next two days, I'm going to be a factor on Sunday. Uh, sorry, Tom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick, Nick Faldo shoots a, a second round 74 and ends up plus six after two days. Uh, as you said, Faldo's kind of done at this point as a competitive golfer. It it did strike me as, I don't know, strange or whatnot because it's hard to win majors, period. But that like Faldo, this precision ball striker, not super long driver, never really sniffed a U.S. Open after the 1990 uh, one where he was in it in the mix um, with uh, down the stretch, you know, and he, he was in a playoff with Curtis Strange at the at, uh, Brookline in 1988. But those are the only two times that Faldo ever really was like a U.S. Open contender. You would think for someone as precise and as disciplined as him that there, he would have been in more of the mix of those, but just wasn't. Our friend Monty shoots a 76 in the second round. He has such rabbit ears all throughout the round. Oh, yeah. He's backing off shots. He's getting a little haughty at every whisper. And at one point, he snaps at the crowd, save your cheers for the Ryder Cup, all right? (laughs) (laughs) Which that won't invite more heckling at all. No, not one bit. Uh, The rain delay uh, may have helped Tiger and Ernie, but it did not help Monty. I tend to suffer more than most with the heat and humidity, and I get headaches quite often. (laughs) And and he's said of the crowd, obviously, they've been to certain tents, referring to the beer tents. That didn't help matters. It disappoints you when you people cheer your missed putts. Uh, and then he said that he began to fear for the safety of his wife in the gallery, that these these rogues in the gallery would uh, sort of be. Which little uh, do they know what's about to happen a couple of years later at Brookline uh, is going to mm-hmm. make anything that happened uh, pretty lame. We'll have to save this for when the uh, Beth Page Ryder Cup comes around for uh, as, as a warning to all all ye timid souls. Uh, John Daly, who shot 77 on Thursday, uh, goes two over on his front nine, Solly. And in the walk from the ninth to the 10th tee, decides, fuck it, I'm done with this. Walks through the clubhouse, uh, into the parking lot, gets into his car, lights a cigarette, and drives 850 miles back to Memphis without stopping uh, for other than gas or like bathroom breaks or whatever. Like doesn't tell Ernie Els, doesn't tell Payne Stewart who he's playing with that he's uh, not, doesn't even tell his caddy that he is quitting. Caddy is is standing on the 10th tee there. Everyone is looking around for John, uh, you know, wondering like what's going to happen. Where is he? Is he going to show? Uh, never shows. They just go on and play through. Uh, go on and play, uh, you know, and have to play as a twosome. Later, his agent, Bud Martin, says, I think he's embarrassed that he had to quit. He said, that violates golf protocol, not telling his partners, uh, and he's sorry. Around the seventh hole, he had a pretty good idea he wouldn't be able to go on. He felt totally drained, and at nine, he had just had enough. John's still working through some uh, some demons in this era. And down three, to Monty's credit, he surges back into it. Mm. The seven to 67. Do not count me out. <laughs> 
he trails by th- you know, three. Um, he, he, after shooting a seven round 36, he only trails by three, Lehman, uh, which is pretty darn. Let's just some fight from our guy, Monty, here. Uh, so Lehman is still the leader, uh, two strokes at five under. Uh, he's really hoping to avoid some tortured history. No one has ever led the U.S. Open three straight years going into the final round without winning any oh, of God. them. Bum, bum, bum. Jeff Maggart is in the mix, too, at three under, but, you know, we don't really care. Uh, <laughs> but the the main threat <laughs> the main threat to, uh, to Lehman is Ernie Els, who shot another uh, an impressive 69. And I'm going to tell you right now. This is from Riley's Gamer. It's impossible that Ernie Els may have invented Neil's game of lingering versus loitering. Uh, Oh, no. Els, meanwhile, was doing the kind of thing that wins you opens, loitering. By Saturday (laughs) night, the South African was hanging around at even par. And on Sunday, he got his 5 o'clock wake-up call, went out with Lehman and and Texan Jeff Maggart, and wrote himself an invitation to the chase. And Riley said, Els likes his lager and is likely to be found drinking it with a bunch of caddies. In fact, he's more often going to bed at five in the morning than getting up at that hour. Ernie is so laid back, it is frightening, Montgomery says. Uh, so Ernie Ernie Els, the original uh, loiterer. Loiterer, uh, bad guy. Say. Yeah. Round four is turns out to be kind of a thriller. Monty and Lehman and Maggart are all tied after nine hell- holes, but then Els joins them with, by chipping in at the 10th. Layman probably should have won this with his ball striking, Zolly, but he could not putt. Like, he mm. just kept missing. He was hitting it to 10 feet. I mean, some of the irons that he hits uh, in the sort of official open video are, are really, really impressive. Tom Layman, probably at this point, the best iron player in the world, and just couldn't quite uh, match it with the putter. And Ernie Els, on the other hand, couldn't miss with the putter. During one stretch, he won putts uh, 10 of 13 holes. So not hitting a ton of greens, but just rolling the rock. Great. Lehman makes a ridiculously good birdie on 15, like a five iron to maybe four feet to pull into a tie with Els and Monty because he'd sort of had a little bit of a string of bogeys. And everyone is still tied when Lehman comes to the 16th green. He misses like short right, probably the worst iron swing of the day to that point, uh, and hits what he thinks is like a perfect greenside chip. Our friend Bill Clinton, as the Chekhov's gun was earlier mentioned in the podcast, is shouting from the... Riley is obviously watching from the one of the 16th like grandstands with bill clinton because there's like numerous bill clinton anecdotes uh throughout this gamer and bill clinton is shouting out as layman's green ball is trickling across the green stop 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 (laughs) (laughs) it trickles (laughs) trickles across good bill clinton for one word being used there that was (laughs) impressive Riley said, golf balls are not generally under executive order branch jurisdiction, uh, and this one refused, and he made a bogey. So at this point, Els and Monty lead by one. So then Lehman comes to the most dangerous hole on the course, the 17th, the 480-yard par 4 17th that we've talked about, one that goes down and out onto the sort of little peninsula, roasts his best drive of the day. Uh, Els had played it just minutes before and, and also hit a great drive, and he'd hit a five-iron that is as good and as smooth as any five iron as you will ever see in your life to like eight feet behind the pin. So Blayman is at the top of the hill kind of watching Monty and uh, and Ernie down on the green. Monty had hit like a, a really bad iron kind of over uh, right of the green and had to hit up a chip. And so like there's a lot going on at this moment, like Layman's sort of sitting in, in the, the tension of things. And Monty decides that <laughs> there is like – a commotion going on when he's he hits a great chip up to six feet. Monty decides there's a commotion going on 
before he hits his par putt. And so he waits a full five minutes. Oh my God. Like for it to, to settle down and for he feels comfortable putting. Like just, just noise in the crowd or like yes. another hole. Okay. Yes. And so this is Riley's description of it. He, after Ells missed his birdie putt, Monty took more than five minutes to come and try his five footer for par. The Scot, who seems to have remarkable hearing, said there was a disturbance left of 17, and he was unsure of what was happening across the water on 18th grade, so he waited. All that dallying got to me a little bit, Ells said. And as you know, he missed the putt. I just went and knocked mine in. And Riley said, Monty has thus became the first professional athlete in history to freeze himself. <laughs> So Layman is at the top of the hill. He's looking down. He's a shot down. He knows he needs to make a birdie. He's he says wait, he's so got a Layman's in the group. Oh god. Layman's in yeah. Layman's a group behind and Monty made yes. him wait five minutes. Five minutes. Yes. Holy so Layman shit. at Layman at the top of the hill. Perfect lie. Perfect yardage. Perfect shot for his, you know, uh little draw. Or O'Reilly referred to it as a controlled crash hook. <laughs> Pin is on the left. All Layman has to do is hit like his stock shot. He Layman says. I can't describe how good that situation was. Uh, imagine being so hungry you can't stand it. You come around the corner on a huge platter and all your favorite foods are right there. It was just so perfect. Sadly, the swing was not perfect. He basically like toe hooks it into the mound, drops, hits the bank, plops right in the water. Nowhere close to being a good shot. The US Open is essentially cooked at this point unless uh, our guy makes a hole in one. Spoiler alert: He does not. That's such bullshit. That like the the if that happened today, like on social media, Monty made him wait five minutes in the middle of the fairway. That like that is is that like a big part of the story afterward? Yes. Is that he got iced by Monty? Okay. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was mostly that people were so interested in making fun of Monty that it was sort of like that he iced himself. Uh, but just that like Monty complains a lot about the crowd, and there's a lot of like Riley even wrote a whole thing about. The crowd was so raucous in part because of all these new fans that Tiger had brought into that it sounded Davis Love, I think, was quoted as saying, like, it sounded like a basketball game out there. Like, people were just yelling and screaming. Monty's yelling, Damn you people, come back to your shanty. <laughs> Don't you have homes? <laughs> uh, so, uh, L's two putts on 18, uh, wins the US Open and, and says, You know, uh, I found my game was really there this week. Uh, I won't do an Ernie Els impression. My mom and dad were here, and I wanted to show off to them a little bit. I didn't realize this, but Els became the first foreign player to own two U.S. Opens in 86 years mm. uh, since Alex Smith of Scotland, which surprises me that like Gary Player didn't win uh, two U.S. Opens, but I guess uh, in his sort of uh, thing that he only ended up winning one. Uh, Monty afterwards said... Uh, I cried after the round, sure. It was the emotion of the thing. I believe it's the toughest tournament to win them all, and I've come close three times now. I cried. I'm only human. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and he would come even closer just a few years later at Wingfoot. Yes. But... Uh, Tiger in the aftermath said that the course, it humbled me big time. Uh, very much felt like he his game was not quite ready for uh, sort of a, a test like this. Um, and Els in sort of the wrap-up says, uh, you know, if you remember in 1994, I said that that came too quickly for me. People better be patient for me. I wasn't ready to be contender in majors for a long time. Maybe I wasn't too patient with myself, but I didn't want to lose this week, and I believed in myself. So hmm. that wraps up the U.S. Open. And man, I, I, it's one of those. I don't think I fully realized how snake bitten Layman was in three straight U.S. Opens. I mean, it. Uh, yeah, even doing them year by year, you, I, I didn't even like piece all that together of uh, how much 
freaking heartbreak he had in three straight U.S. Opens. It's kind of remarkable, like reading all through his things, like how he, you know, it's such a different game, right? Because he's hitting one iron all the time off of tees, and he's just hitting, he's finding it dead straight. You know, it's that you look at like what Bryson goes on to does, does later and just sort of changes the calculus of the U.S. Open forever. Like it's just, it's a very, it's a very different. It's not even like a very different game. It's a completely different sport. Completely. And that's the influence of technology on it at all. It's crazy. Again, that's kind of why we dove into this era was golf was just a lot. Like, look at how many just in the last six years that we've covered, how many collapses we've had or how many yeah. like heartbreak, just failures of do like trying to close this shit out with that equipment was such a totally different question than it is now. But yeah. You can't just wail on it, right? You got to actually step up and hit precise, like center of the face shots. So. Yeah. I'm going to spoil this part for you. 1997 Open Championship, not as exciting as the 97 Masters. All right. So I, I have less content uh, on this one. Maybe the most exciting thing was Tiger, of course, getting off the plane, uh, rocking, this, yes. rocking this look with the, yes. with the white uh, sport coat and those circular glasses that he wore back in the day. We are going to Royal Troon Golf Club in Western Scotland. Uh, we're again on the Monty theme. His uh, dad, his father is the club secretary at, uh, at Troon. Oh. That's lovely. So, uh, prize fund, 2.6 million bucks, 418,000 to the winner, 7,079 yards, essentially the same length that it was at the 1962 open championship. Tiger opens up the week by dumping on the U S fans, uh, by saying Scottish fans don't just cheer for shots that get airborne. And, uh, he says when he tells them he doesn't have time for autographs, they respect it. Um, so you can already see in just a few months, Tiger getting pretty <laughs> worn out by, uh, by a lot of the attention that he has come with this. So, Earl Woods would make some comments on Colin Montgomery going into this saying he has, he allows himself to be psyched out by letting problems get inside his head. There are two steps I would suggest. First, he must admit he has a problem. Then he needs a sports psychologist who can teach him techniques to block out the crowd. I mean, no lies told. I was Earl, say, Earl. Like pretty spot on, dude. I mean, I don't, I don't, it's, it's funny to think about somebody's dad saying that about another competitor, but uh, yeah, that, that is, uh, is pretty spot on, but. Story heading into round one is, of course, Tiger Woods. Uh, he ends. Uh, he steps up and ends up uh, driving the first green. So the, this whole week, the front nine plays uh, downwind, and um, that's a kind of a common theme. A lot of guys step up on this on this opening hole and give it give it a lash. So he opens up on that Thursday, driving the first green. Uh, tries to drive the first green. Excuse me. Ends up in two different bunkers, but actually ends up saving par to start it. Cat's got a pretty solid fit going here, you know, white top with the, you know, the long sleeves underneath, but blue pants, a little baggy white shoes and, and the, you know, the blue hat. Is that uh is that calc? I spy being the tanimal in the background there. Or, uh, I do not uh, think that is calc. No, it's, that must be, it looks like uh, either. It looks like Elkington. 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 That yeah. is as uh, Steve Elkington and Bernard Longer is who he is uh, playing with. So, so, you know, there's a lot of shots of the cat, you know, in precarious spots and bunkers, uh, you know, a f I, I was uh, a takeaway I had was how far of a cry like this shot is from what we would see at the old course just uh, a few years later that, you know, he famously missed every bunker. But, yeah, there's a bunch of the bunch of just the links golf stuff. So, you're going to again, like coming off this, having read the 97 book about how much he learned about Augusta, it looks like there's still a lot of links golf stuff that that Tiger still has to learn, but he has great appreciation for it. Uh, one of the things I would say is he needed to get much tighter fitting clothing because he looks like a hot air balloon in a lot of these shots where <laughs> yes. the wind is just absolutely whipping. <laughs> Michelin man is going to be carried away. He <laughs> <Yes. laughs> looks like one of those, like one of those superhero costumes that people wear for Halloween, where it's like the fake muscles, like Mister Incredible costume, <laughs> or the Hans and Franz things from Saturday Night Live. <laughs> 
Uh, it's not a great fit, but again, like most of the focus on this round one uh, is on Tiger. He makes a, a triple on the railway hole, which is the 11th hole, but finished with a one over round uh, of 72. Uh, the hometown boy, our guy Monty, did not have a great day. Uh, the first clip we see of him is hitting a, a wayward iron off the tee of a par four, and you're not going to believe this, but he was upset <laughs> about something that happened in the crowd uh, directly behind him almost immediately. Uh, after the shot, you hooligans, uh, calm down back there. <laughs> just absolutely just, Cody, I've known you since grade school. <laughs> you know, my father will get you kicked off the course in one minute. He's the club secretary. How dare you? Mark Calcavecchia, who won here in uh, 1989, shoots um, a 74, and there's no way I could do justice to what happens here, but this is a vicious. <laughs> overhand uh club throw putter throw that he makes at his bag um it's pretty impressive tommy tolls on this day drives the first green uh with the first group still on the green the image that you're seeing here is uh somebody lining up a putt as the ball goes racing uh this is where it finished in relation to the hole about six feet past the <laughs> hole that almost aced the, the hole and the, the you know there's not even a pin in on the green darren clark looking quite young and dapper if i may yes. say and he becomes a uh a, a, a part of the storyline coming in jim furrick as he is referred to during the entire <laughs> open championship film uh is getting involved in in the proceedings and uh both he and darren clark would shoot uh four under par in their opening rounds on this thursday uh, fred couples justin leonard and greg norman uh are at minus two and then uh, we have Cabrera, Barkley Howard, who's an amateur, Davis Love, Andrew McGee, and Jesper Parnovic all at minus one uh, on this Thursday. Do you know, without looking, who wins this 97 Open? Only because he's a factor in the following uh, okay. major. So uh, I would not have remembered it without like giving it serious thought. I remember when he won, but mostly what I probably remember was like, oh, an American who wasn't Tiger. Like, yeah. Was well, I'm not going to spoil it just yet in case people Perfect. that are driving don't know. But um, okay. Rick Riley would say about this Thursday, he said, as it was when they had finally counted heads to make sure nobody was pinned to a pork pie cart somewhere, two wind players were leading with 67s, Northern Ireland's Darren Clark, whose game was molded in one of the windiest places on earth, Royal Port Rush outside of Belfast, and Jim Furyk, whose swing is so awful, the wind improves it. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Got a lot of, lot of jokes about Furyk's swing in this era, too. Like, just people not quite ready to, to accept that uh, the gym was going to stick around and, and be, you know, who he was for 15 years. If you remember from our, I believe, 91 deep dive into the Open Champion, uh, uh, Ian Baker Finch, this would be the uh, now famous scene of him shooting a 92 in this oh, round yeah. and withdrawing. Again, this is from Rick Riley's separate article that kind of do dives into uh, – um, you know, his his whole kind of collapse. This is about Ian Baker Finch. He said he played a few practice rounds at Truman with his buddies and he was right around par. But now he was unsure about entering because his back had flared up in Ireland. Another Australian player, Peter Senior, barked, don't be so bloody stupid, Finchie. I know how hard you've been working. Just go out and do it. Suck it up. Try your hardest. Golf is like sex. This is That's end quote. Golf is like sex. Trying your hardest is the worst thing you can do. Yet Baker Finch thought... He's right. I can't just give up. He played. He said, worst decision I ever made in my life. Uh, hit the first fairway and made par, but he doubled the second with a bad chip, doubled the sixth with a hook drive, doubled the postage stamp, eighth out of the left bunker, bogeyed the first three holes in the back, doubled the 13th with a hook drive. Hole by hole, whatever milliliters of confidence he'd built up over six months leaked out of his spikes. 
Walking with him, his friend Gary Edwin, a golf coach, prayed that Baker Finch would pull out of the tournament with a suddenly bulging disc or an instantly sprained thumb. He said, I thought about it, but it didn't seem right. A Baker Finch to the end. He tripled the 16th hole by hitting his drive out of bounds right, then his second one off the map left. He doubled the par 3 17th. He needed to eagle the 452-yard par 4 18th to keep his score under 90. Sure. That was the he said that was the absolute worst feeling I've ever known walking up the 18th of the British Open about to shoot 92 that made the shot at St Andrews feel like chicken feed but you remember two years prior at the old course uh, he hooked one out of bounds at the widest hole in golf on the first tee uh, and had to re-tee. By then, his nerves were afraid not. Fans and reporters lined the fairway to see for themselves if it was true that a British Open champion was coming in with a 20 handicapper score. Lying to and faced with a simple 60-yard chip to the hole, he finally surrendered to the fear. He took out an eight iron and dribbled the ball onto the putting green, not trusting himself to put another ball in the air, lest he skull, shank, snap, or slice it into yet another parking lot, membership lounge, or woman's handbag. It was the equivalent of taking off your skis and walking down the jump ramp. The blood drained from his face, the life from his eyes. He signed his scorecard, limply shook a few hands, and took his wife and Edwin into the one room where nobody else would be, the champion's room, reserved for men who have won the British Open. In the 137 years of the event, no champion had ever entered it like that. He ignored the plush chairs and couches and collapsed on the floor with Jenny and a ball crying next to him and Edwin staring blankly ahead, numb. They stayed like that for 45 minutes, hiding from the press and fans who were looking in through the windows, hoping to catch a glimpse of the touring pro from the country club of hell. Wow. What a paragraph. Not done. Then Baker French got up and did what nobody, uh, what nobody, but he would do. He went to the press room, swallowed hard and answered questions. He said, I can't get any lower than this. Uh, it was so humiliating that some writers couldn't bring themselves to scribble the words in their notepads. That night, bellhop after bellhop filled Baker Finch's room with flowers, champagne, and beer from players, but it was useless. The next day, the scorecard, scoreboard read WD next to Baker Finch's name. You can't, however, withdraw from a 92 in front of the world. Baker Finch flew back to Australia knowing there was only one thing he could do, work harder. Mm. So, Yowza. Yeah, that's uh, incredible writing, incredible uh, kind of you know, I know we relived that part, but again, reading it again was just shocking to to get to that moment. Um, just one of my all time favorite golf stories, like as a, a seminal moment in like Kevin Van Vogelberg's journey of like being a writer was like, re- and the understanding of like reading about failure is often more compelling than reading about victory. That was one of the, the lessons that that story taught me very early on. And, and Riley was a big influence in that. <laughs> don't need, I mean, we say it on every one of these. Rick Riley, complete menace in this time period. Just a mm-hmm. total tour de force, and uh, it really is. I, I couldn't wait to read each one uh, of his columns. Tiger hits the eject button on the tenth hole on Friday, makes an absolute mess. He's playing super quick. Like I've never seen Tiger do this. Like playing super quickly out of like like gorse and stuff like that. Just hacking it around the green, makes a quad. It almost mm-hmm. looks like he's giving up. Then he would he would walk in a birdie on the 18th hole to make the cut. It does the signature putter raise. <laughs> uh, just I, I I don't know why I like this image of uh, this weird collared shirt that he's got with the Nike on the, on the emblem and the, the the you know the the corners kind of fanning up a little Boy, bit. Yeah, just a look that didn't last forever uh, on Tiger. But those striped shirts that he wore in this era were very strange. Like the the weird colors, like the greens. You know, he, he really never. Like even the fluorescent colors that he chose later in life seem to fit him better than the weird like pea soup greens. 
Uh, Darren Clark shoots 66, leads at minus nine. Justin Leonard at minus seven. Jesper is at minus six. Um, and uh, among the special guests at the Open this year, His Royal Highness, the Duke of York, uh, Prince Andrew is in attendance uh, <laughs> and featured in the uh, in the highlight video, which is uh, oh dear, probably not going to make uh, a current version of that if that was to be redone. But um, <laughs> Tiger. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, Tron did reference uh, Epstein's plane the other day on the <laughs> trap draw. So, I mean, it's very possible that, uh, you know, all things lead back to Prince Andrew and Epstein. And it's always all things lead back to the trap draw. <laughs> uh, Saturday, Tiger has himself a day. He goes out in 32. When he gets to 16, he's 290 yards away. And uh, the announcers are like, well, yeah, he's, he's waiting for the green, but he can't get there today. Uh, hits this just massive banana cut. Hits it pin high, 20 feet left of the hole. He makes the putt, chips in for birdie, then on 17, needs a par at the last to tie the course record of 64, and he makes the 10-footer to do it. Mm, so Saturday's 64, yeah. Fred Couples uh, coming up the uh, uh, the 11th hole, the, the railway hole, a hole that was playing really, really difficult. Um, holes out from the from the fairway. Uh, he's got our guy Joe LaCava, of course, by Ooh. his side. And what do you know? What's what do you think the next thing that uh, is that Couples does as he's walking up this eleventh hole? Uh, does he take his hat off? And he takes his hat off and waves it to the crowd. <laughs> yes. In uh, in true, hey, our guys deserve to celebrate too. <laughs> <laughs> he is sticking with his guy, Patrick Cantlay. Uh, hats off uh, on that shot. Uh, in the meantime, Jesper Parnovic has just continued to absolutely ball out. He's speaking of hats. He's obviously know. famous at this time. Uh, for his famous flipped up cap. Uh, but we, can we just take a second to acknowledge the fact that he's got the underside of his bill sponsored? Like that is just, that is next Genius, level yeah. stuff. Uh, the, the activations were, used to be smarter then, you know? No, who, no one's thinking about activating the bottom of your bill these days. Come on. It's un, unused real estate. I don't know about you. Jesper Parnovic was weirdly influential on my junior golf career. Like watching him mash and like I was always jealous of the size of the divots he took, obviously, as a big turf guy. But um, watching how close he would stand to the ball and how pure he was with his irons, like made me, uh, one, I mean, that was one of the swing fields I would try maybe on Monday. It would be a different swing field. I would try on Tuesday, but, uh, I always loved watching yesterday part of it hit the ball. My buddy's golf team. We, we originally, when we like 20 years ago, we formed like two golf teams for a Ryder cup team. One of us was team tiger and one of us was team Phil and, and my team was team tiger. And when the scandal sort of broke, uh, we decided to rename our team team Jesper and there's some regret now that we didn't just stick with tiger, but we've been team Jesper for like 15 years now or whatever. So uh, he's, he's played a, I have like a, several ball markers in my possession that say team Jesper on it. So he's lived on in my right. personal golfing life forever. <laughs> Darren Clark gets it all the way to minus 12, but he made a bunch of bogeys coming in. He falls back to minus nine and Jesper Parnovic is the 54 hole leader at 11 under uh, again, Clark at minus nine, two shots back. Fred Couples and Justin Leonard are at minus six, five shots back. Uh, there's a great shot at the end of this of uh, of Tiger. He is the last one left on the range. Does a little messing around, puts on a little show for the fans, and is doing his uh, his little club bounce thing on there. And uh, got to say, pants, Sully. this is those pants. <laughs> he cannot. Those pants are so high and they're so straight. for two pairs of pants. <laughs> oh like, they are massive. You could hide an NFL lineman's thighs in those pants. It's just <laughs> insane. This anyway, is obviously yes. before the commercial he shoots where he does the, mm-hmm. the, the, the bouncing on the club and the full swing because he takes a full cut at it and whiffs the ball. 
uh, unfortunately, to the and then he ends up hitting. He does it again and hits one, but but not nearly as pure as he does in the commercial. From Riley, um, as we get into this final round, he wrote, Parnovic is famous in so many ways, but mostly as the guy who forgot to look at scoreboards in the 1994 British Open at Turnberry and lost to Nick Price by a shot. Monty would say on that Saturday night, I think Jesper's going to win. It seems like you must lose one of these before you win one. Uh, we did not cover 94. I don't remember uh, this, but I watched the highlight back of this. Of He, he chases the pin on at Turnberry in 1994, thinking he needs birdie to tie. He only needed par to tie, and if he hit it 15 feet right, he'd have a you know, putt to win uh, and, you know, two putt for, to tie short size himself and does not get up and down and misses out on a playoff uh, at 1994 to Nick Price. But some coverage takes uh, that are published on the Sunday morning, the BBC defended their decision to show only brief extracts of Tiger's course record equaling round. Their coverage did not start until 1230 PM and they had to show racing from Newberry due to a contract. Um, <laughs> you don't know how contracts work. Yes, exactly. It's just very pleased to, to see it's that. It's not a charity. <laughs> uh, Sunday Tiger makes a couple early birdies, but he triples the postage stamp after dumping it into the right bunker. Um, Riley, would say you know the u.s open is where tiger learned you can't make a big number earl woods uh told tiger's agent news hughes hort hughes norton last week and troon is where tiger learned you can't make three big numbers uh he had three terrible holes that cost him 10 total shots if he made three pars on those he would have finished second place uh just as in the u.s open in june he made more birdies and fewer bogeys than the winner Maybe the hero is the hero because the, he goes for hero pars, but a few bogeys out of this kid instead of eights, and we might have had something. Uh, Tiger would say afterwards that people said things they shouldn't have out there, so he has lost the respect for the Scottish oh. fans, and he refused. You just, you just don't do that. You just don't here. do that. <laughs> he refused to reveal exactly what spectators had shouted, but he was clearly upset about it. Um, so in this final round, it's Clark and Parnovic in the final group and Leonard and Couples in the penultimate group. Um, there's a montage that plays that relives Parnovic's fatal mistake in the 18th hole at Turnberry in 1994 when he went pin hunting. Um, the hollow there would be known as Jesper's grave. I did not know that uh, about the, sh the hollow short left of 94. We need to get back to naming locations around things. I like agree. That. Um, yeah. Darren Clark goes out and birdies the first hole, uh, then steps up and cold shanks one with an iron onto the beach and out of bounds on the second hole and makes double. Wow. Then goes and clangs one off the hole with his approach into the third hole. Then Parnovic steps up and hits the stick. So this is this image you're looking at here. Uh, is there two shots into the into the third hole? Um, Clark yips the putt, unfortunately, but Parnovic steps up and makes his birdie. Um, Leonard makes five birdies and a bogey in his first seven holes to get it to 10 under par. Uh, again, they're going downwind out to start here. Uh, then it starts to get a little nervy for Jesper Parnovic here. He plays the par five sixth hole, which is called, guess what? Turnberry. Um, oh, how unfair to him. He tries to putt it from like 40 yards, ends up making bogey, and his lead is down to one. Over Leonard, Clark pours in a birdie to get back within two after a really difficult start uh, to his round, but he is back in the hunt. Um, skipping ahead a little bit, Parnovic birdies the 11th hole to stretch out uh, uh, to a two-shot lead, but things really start to go poorly. He um, makes a bogey on the 13th hole, and the lead is one. Now, going back to Justin Leonard, who's in the group ahead, not like preeminent, not, I would love to see the strokes gain data from this round because doesn't hit it great, seems to be having problems from everywhere, and makes just 15-footer after 15-footer after 15-footer. Like, <laughs> 
He is making so many freaking par putts. And then he gets to the 16th hole. Again, this is after making so many putts in a row, not eight footers, like bomb putts in a row. Has this putt on the 16th hole from 20 feet for birdie for the tie. Absolutely drains it. Mm. Uh, but Parnovic is on the and uh, still has the par five 16th to play. Uh, as you skip ahead, Leonard is up on the 17th hole, putting from 35 oh, wow. feet for birdie and drains it. Uh, but Parnovic has a five footer for birdie on on 16 and yips it. He misses the short five footer, um, mm. and Leonard is leading alone at minus 12 after 17. Uh, again, Parnovic's putt to tie the lead, not a long one. It's just not a lengthy putt, no. and uh, it misses on the low on the right side. It's not a very pretty stroke. Weird center shafted putter I'm looking at here. Yeah, it's the, got a yeah, weird like kind of uh, kind of bar behind it, too. I wish I would have got a better shot of that one. But Leonard steps up on 18, hits a fairway wood down the left side. Parnovic gets to 17 and chunks it. I mean, it was awful. Like a, goes way short and left into the into the crowd. Leonard hits a long iron into 18, hits it right in the middle of the green. He makes kind of the walk. It's starting to look pretty much like it's uh, it's Leonard. Uh, Leonard's to, to lose at this point. Um, he two putts par, and Parnovic bogey 17. The lead is two. It's over. Leonard shot final round 65. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they cut to Parnovic's wife and two kids and a nanny on the 18th green walking oh, up. Oh, a nanny. Wait, oh, wait. I double, <laughs> I triple, quadruple take here. I don't think this is Elon. I don't think it's okay. her either. I think they didn't meet until like 2000 or yeah. a couple years later when the, when Tiger, uh, when she gets hired on. Uh, she's younger than Tiger anyway. And so there's, that's no way that she, yeah. she would have been, you know, 16 or something. At this All point. this to say, Jesper's her. family has a type when it comes to, when it comes to nannies, because that is an attractive younger twenties, uh, blonde. I can only assume is Swedish. That looks a hell of a heck of a lot like, uh, like Elon, but, uh, I, you know one, what though? I will say that didn't Elon's sister nanny for the Parnovics and I, that was how they met. Uh, I, I, I know Elon's sister was also a model who did some nannying. So, outside chance that's Elon's sister i don't know that's she it would be more age appropriate we have josephine nordgren that is almost certainly her now that i've done this uh this google boom look at us you investigates incredible (laughs) uh yeah that has to be her Uh, that really has to be her that well anyways great finding that who would have thought when they were making this film together in 1997 (laughs) that it would be this shot would be studied like the zapruder film but um I mean, it, it, uh, again, kind of talking about the failure and what that kind of registered here. I feel like if I, if I have a memory of watching this, it's, it's kind of sears in this, this grief era of golf of like, dude, somebody blew almost every one of these. And like, they just zoom in on Jasper Parnovic's face on repeat. And there's this incredible shot that shows Darren Clark and Justin Leonard, like kind of hamming it up before they're getting ready to go accept the, the, you know, the trophies and the, the runner ups have to uh, accept their silver medals. And I mean, Clark is in, in a great mood and Parnovic just looks like he's in a different, on a different planet. Um, it's really tough, but Leonard ends up winning it by three, despite being five shots down going into the final round. Rick Riley would say, you, you say this is the Tiger Woods era and you're probably right, but Woods may have a stubborn Texas Chihuahua clamped onto his tail and Leonard who has won two PGA tour events and a major in the last 11 months. If you add 27-year-old Ernie Els to 21-year-old Woods and Leonard, you might have a big three-starter kit. Uh, For the first time in history, three men less than 30 years old have won the first three majors of the year. 
found that interesting. I didn't mm. realize that the that big, was the first youth movement. A lot of big threes. Everybody always yeah. wanted another big three. But as, yeah. as Gary as Gary would say, there's only one big three, Holly. <laughs> I don't I don't remember what happens after this, but I don't think Justin Leonard is in a big three for very long. I'd have to check the tape on that one. But uh, he had a very nice career. Listen, I'm not making fun, but a pretty outrageous claim by Riley there. But more from Riley. Uh, for Leonard, there was nothing to do but admire his name inscribed on the trophy not five minutes into his reign as British Open champion. Uh, he says, wow, pretty fast work. Does he have a dry cleaners in Dallas? And then a tiger striped female, <laughs> then the tiger striped female streaker on the 18th green. He said, <laughs> I got to see this. Uh, he said, as he bolted from a ring of riders, and he says, relax, he's single. Uh, couldn't find any images of the tiger striped female streaker on the on the 18th green, but oh bummer! Uh, how dare they they erase the tiger striped female stripper or streaker to history for us? We, we sh- this is this is an important part of history's documentation. We should be able to have that at our fingertips. Uh, other writing, Art Spander noted that Justin Leonard now has as many major titles as Tiger and one more than Phil. Um, oh, which uh, that would change in the coming years. But uh, don't have a whole lot of other uh, funny little stuff other than this was David Begg's final year operating the press tent at the Open. A bunch of players, you know, in the video say a whole bunch of nice things about him. Nick Price says it's great to have known him for 15 to 16 years. Says, you know, we'll miss him. Um, Jack in his tribute to him makes it all about himself and says, uh, I mean, yeah, David, he's been through the whole gamut with me. He's seen me go from a young man to an old man. It's like, what a great tribute uh, to, to David there. Get this. You, you're not going to believe this next part though, but Nicholas is not sure if he'll return to play in the British open next year at Royal Burkdale. Uh, he said, he'll see how he's playing next year before deciding he had played in 36 straight uh, British opens. So he would, of course, return that year in the next three years and also come back and in 2005. Also <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's got one more in him. Who he knows? also said, you know? uh, yeah, I did not think I would be coming this year, but in the last couple of months, I've been hitting the ball well. I think if I can be competitive, I shall be back at Royal Burkdale next year. So. And the only thing is I got this like, guru who like just does all these kind of weird things. It only cost me 20 bucks. <laughs> He then he then tipped the locker room attendant one pound and left uh, back on his plate. That is it. Brief from '97 uh, Open Boom. Championship, but uh, not the most exciting one. I would say similar vibes from the 1997 PGA Championship. Uh, so, do you remember where this one was held? Winged foot. Winged foot. This is the only time that Winged Foot will host a non-U.S. Open. It has hosted U.S. Opens in. 1929, 1959, 1974, 1984, then again in 2006 and 2020. But this time just got a PGA championship. I will say right up front, they sort of take it apart. Uh, Not exactly um, the tough test that we have become uh, accustomed to for winged foot and other times. Playing at this moment shorter than Troon, it sounds like 6,987 yards, uh, which, you know, I guess not that surprising wind isn't quite as much of a factor there, but uh, do you have any idea what the yardage will play when Bryson wins the U S open at Wingfoot? Uh, 7,700 yards. Not quite 74, 77. Wow. Although certainly some of the tees may have been uh, moved around a little bit to play it more like 77, uh, especially after he was just demolishing it uh, early. Uh, a bunch of people think that this, if Tiger hasn't won the last two majors, but by God, this might be the major that he wins because Butch Harmon's dad was the teaching pro at Winged Foot for 33 years. And Butch essentially grew up at Winged Foot. And so he is taking Tiger around uh, and teaching him all the little nuances of don't go at this pin, don't go at that pin. You know, this is a a, a great uh, sort of test. Um, Winged Foot Green's famously small because A.W. Tillinghast 
uh, felt that big greens made for unsavory golf, that it was sort of barbaric to have big greens. And so you had to be a precise uh, player. So Wingfoot's greens have always been sort of famous for those reasons. A funny story, not a lot of like fun anecdotes, but but certainly one that I found uh, on the Wednesday before the PGA Championship, Paul Azinger and Phil Blackmar were getting uh, fly casting lessons at a local park before the tournament when a bunch of kids showed up and started throwing crap apples and uh, as Azinger referred to it, chunks of asphalt at us. Uh, basically, made, Paul made it seem like they were at Fallujah and they were being attacked <laughs> by <laughs> locals. You just don't he, do that. You just don't do that. He referred to them as hoodlums uh, and said uh, that they were just, it was an epidemic. Uh, and uh, he oh, kind of, when, no. the, when the New York press pushed back and, and uh, said, he said, this is probably normal for them, I guess, uh, this kind of behavior. And when the New York press kind of pushed back a little bit, he said that, you know, he he made him realize that, you know, this was a nationwide epidemic. Uh, there are kids out there with no comprehension for what's right and what's wrong. What if they had hit us in the face? Would they have thought that, that was cool? Uh, so I'm really glad that that Paul and Phil Blackmore survived uh, essentially going to war. Uh, wow. This moment. Thank them. Thank, I, I, I'm, I will thank them for their service the next time yeah. I see them. Prior to the tournament, uh, John Daly is back. Uh, he's he's competing in this again. He's asked what chance he has of contending. Uh, he says none. Uh, so, uh, But as round one begins, uh, surprise, surprise, guess who leads after the first day tied with Davis Love? John Daly shoots a 66. I was going to jokingly guess that. I didn't yeah. think that was, gonna, that was what's going to follow. He credits uh, improved fitness and focus, uh, <laughs> saying that uh, these days he stops by TCBY yogurt instead of Dunkin' Donuts when he's on his way home from the course, uh, and that this has uh, helped him lose like 60 pounds. Uh, he looks very similar to the the sort of, the, at least physically, like he looked when he won the uh, the PGA Championship back at Crooked Stick. Uh, he's also wearing the, the sort of Ben Hogan cap. Uh, I wish I had a picture of this to show you because it's quite striking to see john daly in the uh, in the bryson slash hogan cap uh he says he's he's kind of forthright uh with the press which I, I gotta say like not a lot of understanding about alcoholism or like compassion for a lot of things that are written in these days daly says golf is an addiction and so is alcohol it's taken me a few years to learn that i can't think ahead i can't plan for the future basically it's one day at a time one shot at a time uh, and he's asked is if if he thinks this is sort of a second chance at life. And he says, do I believe I've had a second chance? I believe I've had like 15 chances. I've had a lot of chances. And I'm scared of the disease. I'm scared of what it can do to me and what it's done to me. Yeah, I guess I'm scared I'm going to screw up again. And I'm doing really good today, but that's all I can say. I'll get through tomorrow and worry about tomorrow when it comes. Uh, Barry Stanton of the Journal News wrote in a column, uh, John Daly might be somebody's hero, but he's not mine. He wasted his talent that could have made him one of the best players of the game. I hope he wins his personal battle, but I don't care if he wins this tournament. John Daly playing out of the rough is exciting, but it's his own fault that he got there. Uh, Jesus. Which is, yeah. <laughs> kind of a, a harsh... Uh, no, there you go. Look at that. You, you pulled up the picture. I've got his uh, image yeah. of the Hogan cap, which is which is sweet. Thank you very much for pulling that up. Uh, you know, not a look that you see a lot of John, but look how skinny he is there. It's uh, quite impressive. Uh, Davis Love the Third. Shoots 66 to tie John Daly for the lead. Davis Love started thinking back at Troon when he made a quad on the postage stamp this same year, just the last major. Maybe I don't have what it takes to win a major championship. Uh, said he was sort of racked by doubt. 
Um, Davis Love famously sort of had a lot of near misses when Ben Crenshaw won the Masters. Davis bogeyed the final two holes, basically, you know, handed to Crenshaw, who, you know, ended up winning easily. Uh, you know, blew a, a U.S. Open at um, at Oak Hill, like just a lot of kind of like maybe Davis Love is like the most talented person in the game, hitting it as far as Tiger these days, uh, and even John Daly, but just can't quite close a lot of these deals. Uh, a lot of low scores out here, a bunch of scores in the 60s. In fact, more scores the first day in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and Lee Jansen takes a second round lead with a 67. And people are starting to get mad that this is not your daddy's massacre at winged foot. Love trails by a shot after shooting 71. And our man Phil Mickelson fires a second consecutive 69. Nice to get into contention. He's only two shots back and it's winged foot, Solly. So I'm sure nothing bad will happen <laughs> right there at the end. Um, Tom Kite, uh, who we saw back in, in the Masters uh, recap here, uh, he was the Ryder Cup captain that year. And he actually shoots an even par on the – he gets into contention. He's, he's, I think he's a – you know the first day, he's like only three shots off the lead. And he says that he's playing so well this year that he just might have to name himself to the Ryder Cup team. I haven't eliminated anybody, Tom Cat says, when they ask him if he might uh, be a member of the team. Reconstruction's uh, going well for, uh, for, for, for Germany. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> they're, they're, we've rebuilt what we've, we've rebuilt what's off we've built something uh kite says he was motivated this year by a quote that he saw tiger give uh saying that you know uh tom kite and tom watson were pretty good players once once upon a time uh and he tom kite says well since i was a pretty good player one time i thought i'd better show up uh and play well this time so in round three, Justin Leonard surges into the lead with a 65. Wow. Uh, just making, you know, guys are, this is, you know, winged foot. Guys are just roasting it, shooting 65. Did the, did the superintendent retire, uh, threaten to resign just like in 2020? <laughs> I forgot about that. God, that was sick. Uh, no, and not that I could find, but I, I hope so. Uh, it's like a hundred degrees. So I don't know if they were just having to water the shit out of the course, uh, and keep it soft to keep this stuff from dying or, or what. Um, but it's guys are just kind of going at it. Uh, but it, I guess what I would say is that in round three, Leonard and love really kind of pull away from the Davis love shoots to 66. Uh, and the two of them, Leonard is at seven under and Davis love is at six under and, and the next best players are at even par. So it's, it kind of reset itself a little bit, but the but the two guys and and they truly said, you know, it's kind of like a match play situation uh, as they're going into the final round. None of the other big names really show up uh, to play. I do want to just note that our our guy Phil shoots a seventy five in the final round, perhaps a sign of things to come uh, in final rounds at Wingfoot. Uh, he ends up in in twenty ninth after being uh, in tied for fourth after two days. This has really become kind of, I'd say, an underrated performance in major history. Maybe it's because Love really never won another major or because he you know, didn't win four of them before this or whatever, but he shoots 66 in the final round to win by five shots. I'm just going to spoil it. Wow. There's not a lot of drama. I did not it. know that. <laughs> yeah. It's his third 66 in this tournament. So, like, I think there's a chance that the Mackenzie Hughes should actually be called the Davis Love the third because going 66, 66 on the weekend to win the PGA Championship by, uh, by this many shots, pretty darn impressive. Um, if if I may, really random thing that I think I remember, I'm yeah. pretty sure Bob May did that 66, yes, 66, did. 66 in 2000 yes. uh, to get into the playoff, if I remember right. Yes. Someday we're going to do 2000, Sally, and it's going to be a trip. Because oh, Bob we're about May... to get into such a fun period. Like, oh, we're going to have God. so like, If we keep going in order like this, it's about to get way more fun. 
Bob May is like, I feel like that performance is like one of the most underrated things in major history. I remember that major as well as I remember any major in my life, just yeah. watching and just, you know, feeling like conflicted because I wanted Tiger to win, but also like being like, this dude is, what is this guy what a doing? story. Also, I still believe someone threw Tiger's ball out of that bush on 18, <laughs> but we'll get to that another time. Love had really tortured himself for years, um, you know, whether he was good enough to win. Uh, but he had also signed up really tortured himself a lot because, as many people probably know, his father died in a plane crash in 1988, uh, right around the Jacksonville area. They, he took off. He was not the pilot, but the plane took off from Sea Island and there was really bad weather uh, and it sort of forced them to turn back. No one knows exactly what happened, um, although it was didn't seem to be attributed to pilot error, just bad sort of weather and, and crashed in the swamps kind of uh, just north of Jacksonville. And he said he, he really just, he never, like he moved on, he kept playing golf, like he was very young then and, and you know, was thought of as like being the next prodigy, but he didn't really come to sort of grips with it until he sort of wrote a book about he and his dad and that sort of helped him start to heal from it. So as love kind of blitzes everything in the final, um, final things in the field here, what is known as one of the sort of most famous images in golf this year, a rainbow appears over the 18th green. Uh, which everyone sort of uh, felt like was almost like a sign that Love's father was kind of with him there. It was, it was quite sort of poetic, I guess, for uh, you know those who will who will connect such things, those writer types. Uh, and really, kind of a beautiful scene. It's like any guesses on what Nance's uh, final call might have been? I think I know it. Okay. That's what love is all That's about. That's what love is all about. That's right. Uh, a young, uh, a very um, earnest, uh, overly kind of um, soft. Kevin Van Valkenburg cut out the headline that said love conquers all and like pinned it to a picture uh, of he and his girlfriend together and sent it to her when she was off at school in Massachusetts. Uh, and that's one of my sort of, you know, softy boy uh, sort of memories. Most of that I was like, Oh, what a, what a cute headline. We're going to be in love forever. Spoiler. We were not, uh, <laughs> didn't work out. Um, but you know, back to love, he said, you know, nothing will ever replace the relationship I had with my dad, but I found some of my own reasons to love the game. Uh, I wanted to be the number one in the world player in the world. And if my dad were here, he would say, okay, let's take that next step. I'm learning to let myself go, whether it's letting a lot of my feelings about my dad uh, go or by talking and writing about him or just my golf game, just by letting myself play. It's all related. This week I felt so much freer on and off the course. Uh, so very poignant sort of nice moment to close 97. The, the very famous rainbow picture, I think, uh, is sort of, uh, speaks more than I guess, any writer could could sort of put it in place well that's another thing too with getting like doing this in the order we're doing it and 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 like you just you watch the 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 failures and the and the rebounds and triumphs right like he missed a three-foot putt to get into a playoff the 1996 us open in the last one of these mm -hmm. we did and comes back a year later and wins tom layman you know all the us open heartbreak he had comes back and wins the open championship in 1996 like it um it just helps you understand the era a lot more of the you know, the isolated incidents and kind of marry them all up, up together. It's, uh, it's, it's fun. It's not the most exciting. Some of these tournaments are not the most exciting, but uh, it speaks to a lot of golf history. So I want you to know, Sue Tully, that Tom Kite, before the tournament, told, uh, told Davis Love that if he didn't qualify for the Ryder Cup on points, that he was still on the team, which much has enraged Corey Pavin somewhere after he wouldn't guarantee <laughs> Tiger the same thing much later. So you're a liar you're a liar you're, you're going down we should have had we in odd years we might need to add rider cups into this because we probably should do might. um you know I, I don't know not that these need to get any longer than they than they already are so you know. 
Uh, anyway, we I think I just want to shout out the people that have, have really enjoyed these because we've enjoyed the hell out of them and we've had a fun time and just making each other laugh and hearing stories about how we make you guys laugh uh, with it makes it totally worth all the research and digging through. And totally. shout out news, newspapers.com, which Always. is a big help to us for digging up some of the old clips. I, I hope that like majors, you know, with newspapers sort of collapsing and like Twitter kind of disappearing, you know, and the, the archives of that, like I, I hope there's like shit for other generations to find right about majors that go down. I mean, maybe it's just like going to be listening to podcasts and talk. Maybe it's like all the more important that we, you know, talk about the shit that actually happens during the day in these golf tournaments, because like there needs to be some sort of historical record of this stuff. Cause it shows you how, you know, some of these hilarious stories about Nicholas and his like weirdo uh, masseuse that who would have ever remembered that unless the Miami Herald, <laughs> yeah. you know, Put it in a notebook. We had uh, Jack, Doctor Jack Kevorkian with uh, with uh, with Nicholas in ninety in ninety six, and then uh, a guru therapist in ninety seven. But all, yeah. also shout to Eugene, Eugene Register Guard as always because you know, that's uh, always, the, always yeah. the best. Uh, I um, think uh, the Eugene Register Guard is like shout out, our shout out to Mister Jeezy. Like yeah. we just every every episode we just give out a shout out to the Eugene Register Guard, the paper of record when it comes to nineteen nineties uh, golf trivia. So. Uh, likewise, echoing the sentiments that we, we get a lot of great feedback on these episodes and they're, uh, a lot of fun to do. Um, sometimes it can feel like reading a Wikipedia page, but people seem to love them and it's uh, a lot of fun to fun to fun to do that. So, um, we, uh, are recording this in November. If I forgot to say that in the intro and, uh, we'll be airing this probably in January, but so hopefully you never know. Sometimes some, some, some things can happen within a two month, uh, time period that can make some stuff feel dated, but, uh, uh, greatly appreciate the time and effort you put into these, my man. And uh, we'll probably be back with, I'm assuming, 1998 somewhat soon. So thanks for watching. Yeah. Great call. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Expect 